This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello and welcome to the Territory Story Podcast. I'm Peter Gowers and joining me as always is my co-host. G'day, Leon. How are you, Pete? I'm good, mate. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well, and uh, quite looking forward to this podcast, Pete. As much as you are looking forward to the one we did <laughs> with uh, with um, Quinton. Well, no, I'm I'm also looking forward to this one as well. There's um, there's a lot happening in the territory these days, and uh, you know, Quinton was uh, obviously someone who we needed to talk to because of certain issues, but. But today's guest is also as uh, as pertinent with a lot that's happened in the territory, so I'm I'm very happy to be talking to him. Great. Who is it? Well, we will introduce our guest uh, today as the former Attorney General of the Northern Territory, Mr. John Elfrink. Welcome, John. Thank you, Peter, for your kind welcome, and uh, g'day to you too, Leon, and g'day to the people listening. So this is where I get a bit stuck now, Leon, because you're normally the head honcho with the questions. <laughs> but I'm pretty good with the I'm pretty good with the start. Um, as the uh, as the podcast is called Territory Story, John, I guess we like to talk to all of our guests about how they came to the territory and a bit of their backstory and life story. So I guess we'll start out with you know where where you were born originally and where you grew up. Well, my personal story goes all the way back to uh, to, to Europe, and uh, my my childhood was, if you like, a hangover from the Second World War because both my parents were listless souls after the Second World War. Uh, my father had been at uh, one point arrested by the Nazis for forced labour. Uh, my mother had spent uh, four years in a concentration camp under the Japanese, uh, a camp which ultimately killed uh, the boy that would have grown up to be my uncle. Uh, so, Europe post-World War II was a listless place where uh, people were particularly unhappy and the spiritual harm that had been done to all of Europe during World War II saw many, many people leave World War II for other places, as my parents did. They drifted around North Africa um, and uh, they were actually married in Istanbul. Uh, And so when uh, my father came in from the desert one day, uh, I think it was after about six weeks away, he saw my mother. Uh, and being a good father that he was, or the good man that he was, um, he was unable to restrain himself in spite of my mother's warning that she, there was no protection involved. <laughs> and can I, and can I say thank goodness for that six weeks of the desert away in the desert? Because here I am. Um, but their listlessness. John, John, just, uh, just, just, can, can, can I just ask you? Uh, because there's a couple of the holes in that story that I really would like to fill. You said, <laughs> okay. you said your dad. Uh, uh, um, where where was your dad from originally? It was in a town called Enschede, which is on the Dutch-German border. Uh, and so shortly after oh, the outbreak of the okay. Second World War, the Nazis invaded um, his hometown. So he was about 14, 15 when the war broke out. Uh, and so the day that he turned 18, the Nazis turned on his door, turned up on his doorstep and said, right, you're with us. Um and so he was arrested and used for forced labour. He was taken, I'm not quite sure where, um, but uh, on a, a particular day in, uh, I think it was uh, June that year, uh, the Nazis were a little bit distracted. So that was 1944. Um, and uh, there was some Ameri- Americans who turned up at a place called <laughs> Normandy. 
Uh, and so yes. my father excused himself and said, look, I'd like to go to the toilet to, uh, to the guy that was supposed to be gardening him. Uh, and over the back wall he went and he disappeared. But um, uh, he, uh, uh, that, was, that was the nature of Europe. And okay. Europe, if you so read the literature... your dad was Dutch? Yes, he was a, so was my mother. She was in the Dutch East Indies. Um, and so when the Japanese swept down through the, uh, through the, um, through the Dutch East Indies, um, they collected all the white people and stuck them into concentration camps, including my mum, who entered the camp at the age of about five and remained there until she was nine. Um, uh, and uh, she was a, a woman from a long line of tall, tallish women, um, but she remained at Stoneton her whole life because she didn't physically grow so much as an inch between the age of five and, and nine because of the, the paucity wow. of, of available food. Her brother, who died in the camp or uh, died as the result of a stray hand grenade, uh, oddly enough, in the, in the post-war uh, camp period, it was shortly after the Second World War was over, but the whole thing was just an awful tragedy. But to understand my John, parents is to can I just ask you? Can I just, can I just ask you about your mum? What were she? What were her parents doing in the Dutch East Indies? And where exactly in Indonesia are you talking about? <laughs> okay, we're talking about Yogyakarta, which is uh, not is right. on the island of Java. Uh, that's where the, yep, she was yep. interned. Um, my right. my grandfather, who was a bit of a tearaway, was essentially. Um, uh, made a remittance man and sent off as a very young man to the Dutch East Indies because he was a, a dreadful trickster and a, probably a bit of a tearaway. Uh, right. And so he ended up in, in the Dutch East Indies and um, there was a military officer who had a daughter uh, who was quite smitten with the tearaway and so much to her father's chagrin, she married him. Uh, and then, of course, they had children. <laughs> and then the children, yeah. the children, uh, of course, and the mother ended up in this concentration camp. So what starts as a lighthearted story about rebellious teenaging uh, ends up as this calamitous years in this dreadful um, in, uh, concentration camp. And my mother is a child. Interesting... Sorry, I'm just saying, isn't that interesting, John? Like your dad was, uh, you know, a, a prisoner under the Nazis and your mother was a prisoner under the, the Japanese, and they were both Dutch. Well, it's, uh, that was the nature of, of the war. I mean, look, yeah. both my parents walked away from the war saying it could have been a lot worse, and there are 55 million people who, after that calamity, did not get to share their stories because they were dead. Yeah. Now, yeah. put yes. that into context. Yes. Take the population of Australia, take the population of Australia again, take half the population of Australia again, and that's the death toll of the Second World War. Yeah. Yes. So mm. it, 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 it was probably one of the most barbarous times, possibly with the exception of the spread of Genghis Khan's Mongol Empire in all of human history. Mm. And, and how did yeah. it shape your parents? Well, as I said, they were listless. My father was a frustrated artist and, and uh, in spite of himself, I think generally a fairly optimistic man. And he was, the Europe at the time was just awful. If you read uh, the you know, German literature, particularly at that time, there was a fellow by the name of Heinrich Böll uh, who wrote a book called The Clown. And rarely have I read a book that actually felt me, left me feeling an absolute sense of despair because the expression of nihilism, which that book represented, was actually... Germany in the late 40s, early 50s. And so when 
countries like uh, Australia did things like the Snowy Mountain Scheme, small wonder that so many people turned up out of Europe uh, to just simply run away from a, a continent which had failed its people time and time and time again. Anyway, um, so we move on and my parents were listless. My father wanted to go to South Africa. Um, are, we, are you guys still there? I'm not quite sure if I've got you. Yeah, I'm yeah here. mate. Yeah, we're oh, here. sorry. Okay, my apologies. Um, so uh, comes the... Uh, Come the, uh, the the period of listlessness that my, my parents had, my father said, all right, let's go to South Africa. Mum said, I'm not having a bar of that. You know what's going to happen in South Africa. So they stuck a pin in the map and they settled on this city called Melbourne. <laughs> so dad dad came ahead, ahead of mum. And he had this small small job to do in this in this out of the way place called Darwin. So Dad turns up, <laughs> and the first thing that he realizes is that his drinking does not stand out one jot. Um, <laughs> it's got palm trees, and so he sees himself as this latter day Paul Gauguin and says, "This is it, absolutely, this is it." So he sends a a, a telegram, as it was in those days, back to Mum and says, um, "I found it." And he, he told her where it was. So her response was, does it have running water? Uh, and, of course, he was able to say, yes, it does. So she agreed to come to Darwin. And so in 1969, um, as a three-and-a-half-year-old boy, um, uh, we got off the aeroplane and there I was in Darwin about to, to set out on my life. So you flew over? Yeah, my mum my came through the old system where you actually had to go through. It wasn't really an internment camp, but it was a, uh, a, a clearing camp uh, which was set up in the southern states. Uh, and once you were processed, that process took a few days and then they, they flew. Uh, uh, we flew up from, um, from Melbourne uh, and met uh, Dad in Darwin. But you, you came to Australia by boat, I presume? No, no, no. By that stage, aeroplanes had been invented, and uh, uh, so there were jet services uh, which were cheaper to travelling by boat. Wow! It's not that old. No, no. I, I realised that. I knew the I knew the aeroplane existed back then. But I mean, I remember my grandparents went to Europe later than that, and maybe it was by choice. But people still travelled by boat quite commonly back then. Oh, they did. But in any instance, we we arrived by plane. Um, I remember wow. the trip very well. Um, really? And I you were three had... and a half and you remember that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've, I've got uh, some fairly good memories of Holland still. So, you know, from the age of about three, I have recollections of Holland. They're only little things. Um, and they're, of course, the memories of the three and a half year old boy. So what I have a clear yeah. recollection, a re recollection of is uh, the taste of the paint on the balustrade at my grandmother's house. Do you remember? Do you remember the journey, uh, John, on the plane? No, I remember bits of it. Um, I remember I nearly got left behind in Catherine because they used to do a thing called the, the milk run in those days, which meant yeah. that the plane coming up from Adelaide would then stop in Alice Springs and then would stop in Tennant Creek and then stop in Catherine and finally arrive in Darwin. And it was part yeah. of the government service of, 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 of servicing these remote communities. Well, I'd found this little mate at the, um, at the airport, and as I recall now, a little Aboriginal fella, and we had a great time. And all the, everybody climbed back on the plane and, and mum huh. was probably jet-lagged and fatigued after having travelled halfway around the world uh, and stuck, stuck in a camp for a, a while uh, with three kids, uh, only just realised as the door was being closed that she was down one. Uh, 
Um, and so one of my strong recollections is me looking up at this, the, at, at my mum standing in the, the doorway of this plane, um, uh, screaming at me to um, uh, to get up the bloody stairway and get back into this plane, which I thought was a shame because I was really enjoying the company of my new friend. So you, so you're three and a half year old boy in Darwin, uh, 1969, and you grew up here. Absolutely. So uh, mm-hmm. uh, Jingley Primary School was first opened in 1971 and I was uh, amongst the very first students to attend there in my first year of primary school. Uh, went through right. Jingley, finished at Casarina High School, um, bailed out early, um, uh, had a very checkered um, uh, youth myself um, and I've never made a, a secret <laughs> of it. Um, I got into a bit of strife, um, actually broke into a couple of houses, got into strife with that. One thing led to another. I, my parents despaired, of course, with this wayward kid. Uh, and right. so they they determined that I was going to repay the money I'd stolen. So uh, they got me this job at, uh, at a place called Tropicus Nursery, which was run by a bloke by the name of Dennis Hearn. Now, he turned out to be a most wicked fellow, um, and he took advantage of me in, in a most profound and nasty way and eventually ended up serving... Um, uh, I think oh, he was receiving a four and a half year sentence for his crimes against me. So, so uh, who was Dennis Hearn? Well, he, he, Dennis, was... Dennis Hearn was a, a nursery man. And so I was set to work at the nursery for $2 an hour so I could oh, then repay right. the money I'd stolen. And right. He, uh, he started taking took advantage. advantage of you. Yeah, mm. and I was terrified of my father's fury if I lost this job, of course. You know, I was already in mm-hmm. enough strife for breaking into houses and stuff. So mm. I was trapped in this circumstance, and he became increasingly uh, thirteen. Um, mm. So he became increasingly invasive, and the worst thing he mm. did, of course, was was take me to a, a lavatory, which is known as a beat, uh, where he was going to, as he said, share the wealth. Uh, and so uh, he was mm. taken into a cubicle, and it was a case of taking number. Um, mm. So you know, it was pretty ghastly stuff. Um, I didn't mm-hmm. really recognise it at the time how awful, how bad, badly it was affecting me. But uh, the consequences were that I actually failed year nine that year, and I was spiralling out of control even worse. Um, mm. And I'm not. It's it's. I say this as a as a matter of fact thing, uh, because mm. it is what it is. I'm not proud of it, nor am I embarrassed by it. It's just one of those things that happened. Mm. And the reason that I remain open about it is that um, I want other people to know that in spite of some fairly profound sexual abuse over a year, uh, over the period of, a, of eight months, and I'm talking mm. um, uh, as invasive as, as you could contemplate, mm-hmm. um, then I want people to know that in spite of that, you can still go on to live a happy and, uh, and productive mm. life and be a good human being. Mm. Um, yeah. The journey isn't, isn't made any easier by those sorts of things. Um, but nevertheless, I use it as a touchstone to know everything I don't want to have happen to other mm. people around me. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And so how did he end up going to jail? Well, uh, it's a curious thing. I mean, this is one of the the oddities. I'm, I'm not given to, to sort of great religious thought or, or, or fatalism. Um, but I've, as you know, joined the police force. And, of course, I had... Uh, some pretty serious alcohol and drug problems in in the early part of my police career. And I was still pretty much a wreck until the time I was about 21, 22. And so 
finally I started getting my shit together and, you know, I should have opened up about it then, made the complaint then. But mm. if you are so fragile, the last thing that you really want to do is, is start to pick a fight with a pedophile and just mm. bear your soul. So mm. I just kept it quiet, didn't go anywhere, um, told my wife about it, well, that was about it. And it was a bizarre occurrence because on the... The very first day that I was elected as the member for McDonald's, so that was in 1997, I remember I walked into my office, which had been vacated by the former member, Neil Bell, and mm. the, the, office, the office was quite empty, but for the telephone, which was sitting on the desk. And I think this was about October. So the election was in August, September, and, and I didn't get the office until October. So the phone was, was ringing. So I thought, oh, you beauty, I'll pick up the phone. And I'll answer it as the new member for McDonald's. I picked up the phone and said, John Elfring, member for McDonald's, how may I help you? And the voice on the other end was a, a lady and she said, I'm Detective Natalie Scott. I'm investigating uh, uh, the conduct of a man called Dennis Hearn. Can you help us with it? And well, bizarrely, the very first call you'd pick up as a member of Parliament. Now, that placed me immediately into an extraordinary position, was my first act as a member of parliament, a legislator in the Northern Territory, to deny uh, a crime. So I sort of hung up and I said, look, I'll, I'll call you back later. I hung up and, of course, the world is collapsing around my ears. It was supposed to be the, the start of a new career. Mm. So I rang the then Chief Minister, Shane Stone, and said, mate, I've got a problem, and I explained it to him. He was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. Uh, and he immediately... Um, uh, organised messaging and how we were going to handle the issue. And he said, you have to report it. So, of course, I did. And I, I prepared a statement and handed it to the police. I mean, as an ex-police officer, I had no problem doing my own statement. Um, and then ultimately, the, he, um, Hearn was committed to stand trial and he stood trial. And um, he was convicted on, I think, six counts um, of uh, of sexual assault against me, uh, which were uh, the old offence of buggery of a child, mm. Uh, and he was convicted and, and he was sentenced to four and a half years in prison. Um, so uh, it was a, a watershed moment for me, but it was also an important way to clear the decks. And my only regret is mm. that I waited so long. Um, mm. But I made a decision there and then that uh, I wouldn't allow this to, to get in the way of the rest of, of my life. In fact, I've used it to inform my attitudes toward these sorts of things uh, and even today when since getting to Adelaide I've, I've now um, started a, a charity uh, which is aimed at supporting the victims of sexual crime called the Sabre mm. Foundation and the function of the charity is quite straightforward is that where the perpetrator has some property uh, that can be extracted uh, mm. we are the, the charity will provide uh, legal representation for the victim uh, to enable uh, the perpetrator to be um, to pay uh, redress uh, through the, the the civil process, mm. uh, and so um, curiously, uh, next Monday uh, we've had one particular instance come up, and next Monday um, I'll be taking a victim to the police here in South Australia um, to lodge a criminal complaint because the evidence against this person is so strong. So. Um, I've hoped that I've turned a negative experience into a positive experience and that I'll be able to continue to assist uh, victims of sexual crimes, either through the criminal process um, by helping them 
through the policing process or alternatively um, lodging civil actions against their perpetrators. Mm. Jo John, um, wow. just to go back a little bit, um, yeah, so year nine, this happened, yeah, spiral, spiralled out of control. Um, yeah. How did you get from year nine to becoming a policeman? Um, the one one lucky break, I I was sort of, after year nine, I, I fell into a hole and then I, it came better and then I sort of went into a hole. So there were these enormous emotional swings. Mm. And I I remember at one stage there was this, at that time where they used to do a police cadet system, which was a, essentially an apprentice policeman. Mm. And I thought, I'll have a crack at that. And I went and saw a bloke by the name of Sergeant Bob Bradford who said, mate, you're going to have to get your shit together. Your marks are crap. Um, and so I went and got my shit together and I got some pretty good marks in the end of year 11 and um, I was accepted. Now, it may have been the case, that, that, that and I, I can only guess at this, uh, that my surname may have helped because my father was in Rotary and he had uh, friends in the police force. Now, that's pure speculation on my part. But for whatever mm. reason... Um, whatever reason, the I managed to get my marks up. Um, I, they told me to lose some weight, so I lost about 20 kilos. So I was a fairly chubby kid. Um, and I was able to get through the police cadetship and through that process then ultimately become a police officer. But I was still pretty mixed up. They, they uh, ended up sticking me in, in communications. Um, yeah. So in those days, the, if you had a miscreant or a problem police officer, you'd find a nice quiet corner to park them and hope to Christ that they didn't make some sort of dick of themselves. And so communications was a, was a place where you answered the radio and answered the phone and you didn't have any real responsibility. Um, mm. And it was during that time that I started to also address some of my issues. I mean, I got on the piss one night, made a complete fool of myself at the uh, at the casino in, in Darwin. In fact, I... Um, sort of fell out of the air conditioning system. It's a bit of a long story. Um, uh, Sounds like a fun Oh, God, I ended up getting tackled on Mendel Beach in front of the casino with three bouncers sitting on top of me. And I, was such a, I was such a mess at that point that the, the casino didn't even bother uh, laying any charges um, and the coppers that turned up just took me home and said, uh, you've got a problem, son. So the next day I turned up, uh, I put a uniform on, went into work and, and the sergeant pulled me aside and said, uh, it's time for you to seriously consider your career options, mate. Um, and from that day, I thought, well, I sh maybe I shouldn't drink. Uh, maybe that's, that's part of my issue because I was a, a dreadful, dreadful drinker. Uh, and so from that day, and I can give you the date, that was the 29th of uh, September 1986 to this day. I've not, uh, not had an alcoholic drink since. Uh, and what, I, what I've discovered is that um, as, as, as a result of that, um, I'm no longer a mad freakoid and I ended up um, being able to go back to school, um, get my Bachelor of Arts with political science, get my, uh, my law degree, uh, do all the postgraduate studies that you've got to do. And I now um, uh, have my, my shingle up along with an old mate of mine here in Adelaide, uh, Jones. Well, where did you do your... Where did you do your studies? Um, next to a campfire most of the time because I was a member <laughs> for McDonald when I did all of this. Right. And so John, I was a distance. It, yes. It, it's, it's so interesting you say that. You know why? Because when I started my law degree at the then Northern Territory University in 1990, 
guess who was in my first tutorial? Uh, Neil Bell. Neil Bell. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was this thing about members for McDonald because studying law and seemed to be in there. <laughs> yeah, and he would have done it exactly the same way. Right, right. And so, so literally, I was I'd go out bush and I'd be sitting next to my campfire, and I've got a photograph around lying around somewhere of me sitting next to a campfire reading my contract law book. Um, and, and so, how did uh, you get to lectures then? Well, you didn't because it was all the, the distance ed stuff was getting better and better, and whilst it wasn't all online like it is now, in those days it would still arrive in large packages and envelopes and whatnot. Um, you basically were guided through your studies following the manual that you were posted. And so you were required to, to turn up to, to tutorial sessions. Um, so I went through University of New England. Uh, and so twice a year for six years, I would have to fly to, uh, to um, Armadale in New South Wales and participate in a, week, in a weekend worth of, of really intense lectures. And the rest of it was by science assignments and exams. Wow. Right. And so that was between which years? Oh, God, I can't remember. Uh, I do know that uh, I started when I was the member for McDonnell and I finished um, in the intervening period because I was the member for McDonnell for eight years, then I had three years out of politics, and then I returned as the member for Port Darwin. By the time I returned as the member for Port Darwin in 2000 and eight, um, I had already completed the degree and um, I, the postgraduate studies were complete as well, so the GDLP and, and whatnot. Okay, uh, so, so between was, 80, sorry, between 86 and 97, 97 was when you entered politics for the first time, right? Yes. Uh, were you a policeman that whole time? Yes. Uh, so I went basically as a 17, from the age of 17 when I started as a police cadet to the age of 32. Um, in fact, I'm looking at my wall here. My Bachelor of Laws was given to me in April 2008, so I graduated at the end of 2007. Um, right, right. So I and, and so, to, go, go ahead. So, oh, look, I love being a policeman. I mean, particularly in remote and regional areas, um, you know, it was terrific. And if I had not stumbled into politics and literally uh, stumbled into politics, um, I'd probably be still a police officer to this, to this day. And so how did you stumble? <laughs> well, um, I joined a political party. So when you live in a, in a household where your parents are constantly talking about the importance of a democratic system, um, because both of them had experienced what happens when a democratic, democratic system fails right. uh, and where politicians fail in their duty to their, to their people, it's very hard not to become interested in politics. And then, of course, as a police officer, you get to see things which also inform your your impression of, of how the world is and how it should possibly be. Mm. And so I my first degree I did when I was a police officer. So that was as a uh, which was as a political science degree. Um, so I majored in. In fact, I had three majors it was political science, history or, or sorry, two majors it was political science, history and uh, and um, literature. Um, mm. So. Uh, I was politically aware, so I joined the CLP, which was a fine party, had a good track record. Um, and what made you cho choose that? Uh, look, I'm a great, I'm a great believer in human liberty. Uh, I am what you would call 
at an economic level, and I see the world very much through economic lenses, a, an economic dry. In fact, I'd be more accurately described as arid in terms of my economics. <laughs> um, so, so that and with a great belief in human freedom and that the best defence for human freedom is politicians who would work to that end. Um, and, of course, parents who despised totalitarian states and despised the state for obvious reasons. Um, it was hard not to be, be drawn to the liberal side of politics. Um, I am not a conservative. I am very uh, liberal in my worldview when it comes to a number of uh, important issues, uh, gay marriage and those sorts of things. Go for it. Um, uh, if somebody wants to be married to another person, I have no problem with that. Uh, that's the choices that, that consenting adults make in a free world. Um, mm -hmm. Where where my where my liberalism does uh, nail down tightly though, is that I believe in balanced budgets and 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 government not being too intrusive. Mm. So freedom, I, I believe in freedom. Mm. So the CLP represented that more than than the Labor Party ever could. Of course, uh, they're on the left side of politics. The very nature of of creating a state. Uh, and a centralised economy and all those sorts of things uh, is what they mm. stand for. And there are good people in the Labor Party. Um, I may not agree with their philosophies, but mm. there are many, many good people, well-intentioned, honest and honourable folk in the Labor Party. Mm. And I, over the years, learned to respect many of them. But they represent... Can you give me some examples of some? Um, well... Uh, in spite of my history with people like Chris Burns, I always found him a guy mm. who was very dedicated in the Northern mm. Territory. Uh, Sid mm. Sterling had a lot of time mm. for Sid. Um, mm. uh, you know, in spite of the fact that we used to snarl at each other across the chamber and his, his eruptions were legendary, um, mm. his eruptions were also the source of his genuine passion. passion. Mm. Um, and so, you know, on the, on the federal scene, you know, blokes like Barry Jones, you just hope in high regard. And one of the people mm. I still call a friend to this day was my fellow Attorney General in, in South Australia, a bloke by the name of John Rao, um, mm. who, frankly, I think that if if the Labor Party was full of John Rao's, they'd never be unelected. Um, mm. Such was his credibility and decency. And so those are the sorts of people um, I thought made or gave Labor politics credibility. Mm. And so um, when did you join the party? Oh, the CLP, I joined in probably about 96. Um, so about the same time as you were running? Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, but, mm. I mean, I was, I was never that serious about it. And what happened mm. was is that they called for pre-selection. And, of course, Neil Bell was mm. this titan in Labor politics. Um, yeah. To stand against Neil Bell was to, uh, was to fly your Cessna into the side of Ayers Rock. Uh, the result <laughs> was going to be the same. <laughs> and so... Um, I got this phone call from from Pappy Bullock, who was the commander in charge of the Alice Springs Police Station. He says, Elfrink, what have you done? <laughs> and I said, oh, sir, I'm not quite sure what you're talking about. He says, the chief minister has summoned you to his office and he's asked me to get you to go down there. Uh, so straight after work, he said, and he said, what have you been up to? I said, <laughs> Bucket if I know, sir. <laughs> so I fronted uh, the chief minister, and there, there was Shane Stone sitting next to Suzanne Kavanagh, who was the party president at the time. 
Mm. And, of course, you know, you're this lowly public servant. I'm a, a little sergeant down at the, the local police station and all of a sudden you're fronting the head of government. And uh, he said, we want you to stand for McDonald. You're not going to win. We just need a face on a poster. And I mm. said to him, look, here's the deal, um, Shane. Like Chief Minister, I would never have called him Shane at that time. I said, here's the deal, Chief Minister. I'll tell you what we'll do. This is what I'm going to need to win the seat of McDonald. He said, you're not going to win. I said, this is what I'm going to need to, to win the seat of McDonald. And I outlined some of the, the, the things that I needed, which were then, mm. you know, vehicles and, and, and a couple of other things to, to move around. Mm. And um, uh, I said, I'll speak to my wife. Uh, so I spoke to my wife and she said, yeah, whatever. Um, so I was <laughs> expecting to go through the election and then put my uniform and go back on to work the, the next week. Can you well, just tell us, uh, just for the sake of uh, you know, uh, clarity, uh, McDonald, what does that take? Which part of the territory is oh, that okay. taken to? Right. Uh, take a mental picture of the. Of, I invite your listeners to think of the Northern Territory and then uh, draw a line about 400 kilometres up from the intersection of the Northern Territory, South Australia, and yep. uh, WA. And then do the same on the Queensland side and then draw a line across from that. So it's an area mm -hmm. about the size of Victoria plus Gippsland again. So at the time it was, mm. I don't know, 300,000 square kilometres, something like that. Mm. And and it was everything there except Alice Springs. So most of so it what, was traditional. So, what, so are we talking about Tennant Creek? Or no, or is that Barclay? That's a different no, area. no, no, that's far too far north. So yeah, it okay, wasn't quite okay. straight across. There was a sort of like a U-shape that went around Alice Springs, but... Basically, right. the same latitude as Alice Springs, a little bit higher, but not much. How many people so, live in that Oh, the population of that area would have been about 20,000 um, wow. with about, with about 6,000 voters at the time. Wow. Right. Any, any notable towns? Yeah, uh, Yalara, um, Hermansburg, okay. Uendamu, Papunyas, uh, Mount Liebig, um, uh, Gingerporta. Uh, think a few of those. Um, so basically, okay. all, a lot of Aboriginal um, settlements there. A lot of uh, traditional folk, and um, yes. and so they, you know, and they knew Neil Bell. He was entrenched in the way that Warren Snowden mm. is entrenched. Yes. Uh, and so there was absolutely no chance that Neil was going to fall over. So I thought to myself, all right, well, I'll have a, a crack at this. I'll stand, and then I'll go back to work. Well, after I was pre-selected, and then Neil Bell had gotten the shits on with it all, uh, <laughs> and so he announced his resignation, and then the Labor. So Party, how did how did you get elected? You, I mean, you were not <laughs> supposed to get elected. What did you do? Well, um, you've got to remember that I'd, I'd worked in a number a number of remote communities. I'd never sort of been permanently stationed, but I did a fair amount of relief work. So I had a profile of sorts. Right. Right. Um, and, of course, you've got to remember that many of my elect my voters had at one point or another been arrested by me, so I, I was known. Um, right. Now, anywhere else, of course, in the real world, um, not the, the sort of Salvador Dali painting, which is remote territory politics, but in the real world, of course, that's not how you get elected, is by, <laughs> by, by, <laughs> by being the enforcer of the law. <laughs> but I had a number of traditional people sort of say to me, uh, I know you, and we'd have a conversation, and they said, what are you doing? And I'm standing at the election. I don't know what that's about, but you'd see them at the polling booth, so they'd, they'd recognise you, and they'd laugh with you, and uh, you arrested me on such and such a date, and I said, well, did I treat you all right? No, you were good. 
So they'd end up saying, I'll vote for you, and they'd walk in the, <laughs> in the polling booth. And, of course, they'd bring a lot of their mates with them. Um, also, there was the other thing is that there was an, an Aboriginal candidate uh, who also stood in the seat at the same time as an independent, uh, and he didn't like the Labor Party at all, so he sent me his preferences. So I got, I think, about oh. 40% of the vote, and then I scraped home on preferences. So the seat swung, swung 18%, and I held it by one. Wow. So by 1%, right, okay. Yes. So wow. what happened then, of course, is that <laughs> there's this recount and this recount and the Labor Party is just railing against the fact that they've lost this seat. Their, their, their candidate was hopeless. He was a, some cra- uh, union hack. Uh, Mark <laughs> Wheeler was his name. And he had no way, he just didn't know how to talk to the locals. Um, in fact, a, a number of uh, people told me afterwards that he, he appeared to have been frightened by them. Um, which doesn't particularly so, help so, the so way. Was, so, so, you didn't, you, so you didn't run against Neil Bell? No, Neil Bell had, had gotten the shits on, and he, he, he said, "He said, oh. stuff this. I'm <laughs> going to go and do something else." I, there was no way in, in on God's earth I would have ever beaten Neil Bell. Yeah. So why did he leave? Why did Neil Bell quit politics? Oh, I think that, that he was. I think he had the the, the um, dubious honour of being Australia's longest-serving opposition member. Now, I can tell you there's there's nothing so quite disheartening as having to sit opposite a government and watch them government in a way that you don't agree with. To ask a human being to do that for 17 years uh, is corrosive to the spirit in ways that that I couldn't begin to imagine. (laughs) And, of course, Neil was this this firebrand, passionate Labor guy uh, and so naturally, his anger was was amplified with every passing year of what he considered to be wretched government. Of course, I disagreed with him. But yes. eventually, I think he just woke up one day, looked in the mirror and said, oh, bugger this. And he was out of there. Right. Can wow. I just plant a flag right there, John? Because yep. it, w- what you said is, a, is an incredibly beautiful segue into a question that has been burning Peter and me for the last 24 hours since we discovered this, right? Now, you may or may not be aware that there's a by-election in the seat of Johnston uh, this month. Yep. Now, uh, the CLP are fielding a candidate, uh, Labor are fielding a candidate, and this new party called the Northern Territory Alliance, which some would characterise as a, as a, a CLP light or a CLP breakaway or whatever you want to call it, uh, is also fielding a candidate. To our complete astonishment, we learnt yesterday that the CLP are preferencing Labor second on their how-to-vote card. Having yes. regard to what you've just said about being in opposition and watching a party govern in a, a, in a way that you completely disagree with, why on earth would they, would they do that? You're asking the wrong guy. I, I don't know. Um, look, I could well understand that the seal. Perhaps it's, it's, it's not really that they're preferencing Labor, but if you look at the rest of the ticket, um, uh, the field on the ticket might be so unpalatable to the CLP 
is that they will simply see labour as the lesser of six evils. Um, however, <laughs> as far as territory alliance is concerned, of course, one would expect that with people like um, uh, their candidate, Stephen Close, um, and Terry Mills uh, at the head at the helm of this organisation, that there would be a conservative preference. And the only thing I can put it down to is that because Territory Alliance has decided not to preference the CLP, um, it's a little bit of back in your face. Um, if that's their motive, that's up to them. Um, I, I, I'm curious to see how that by-election will go. Okay, I'll, t I'll tell you what my difficulty with that with that uh, thinking is. And, and, and look, on, on one level, I understand that. But the Territory Alliance has preference to CLP 6 and Labor 7. Now, if the yep. CLP wanted to, uh, you, you know, give back in that sense, they would have done this. They should have done the same thing. Rather, they put Labor number two, which means that if the CLP don't get enough primary votes, all their preferences go to Labor. That's right. And Labor has got a fairly decent chance, like you did in McDonald, of, uh, of getting their candidate up. That's right. So here's the question. is that it, The question isn't who gets the most votes in the first round. The question is who comes third. Yeah. <laughs> and if the, whoever comes third, it'll be their preferences that will flow uh, to whoever. Now, if people follow the how to vote cards as they as they often do, then you're quite right, and it might be a case of cutting off your nose to spite your face. Well, I'm glad you said that because that's exactly what we think. Peter and I are still trying to figure out what the difference between Territory Alliance and CLP are. We haven't figured that out yet. No one's told us. <laughs> oh, look, you know, this is former CLP Chief Minister. Um, Stephen Close was once an advisor on the fifth floor of Parliament during a CLP government. Um, yeah. So, uh, yes, one would say that there is a sort of natural synergy there that you would expect. Um, however... Uh, I'm not in the back rooms of the CLP. I have no idea as to why these decisions are made. Um, and maybe there is a, a hope and an expectation that Labor will be the one that runs third. Um, if I right. read the tea leaves in, in, da in the Territory at the moment, the Labor Party is probably not much more popular than the CLP was in the, the, at the end of our term of government. Mm, interesting, interesting. Um, Okay, so you were member for McDonald, what, for eight years or two terms? Yep, two terms. I won the second one um, on uh, absolute majority, so uh, I retained my, my position. Uh, and then, right. of course, ATSIG was wound up, and that's when Alison Anderson stopped being an ATSIG commissioner and she stood for the Labor Party. Oh, and right. And I got, I got my ass whipped, as was <laughs> always going to happen. Yes, um, yes, yes. You know, blood's thicker than water. I had yes, a, a number yes. of people. Gus Gus Williams came out of the polling booth in um, in Hermansburg, and he said, "John, I really like you, but she's family, mate." And yes, yes, you accept that. So yes. Mm. So and what I did you do my... over those eight years? Oh, what as as the member for McDonald? Yeah. Um, I spent a lot of time in remote and regional areas, learning uh, a lot more about traditional uh, law and systems than I ever believed. I was capable of knowing, um, and I went from from having some fairly condescending attitudes in those years to learning 
some pretty significant things about the people that lived in those areas. And so over the years, I developed a healthy respect and, of course, a certain level of criticism of, of certain cultural practices. Um, but I got to understand Aboriginal people and their, their, their systems and how they worked uh, really well. And it was a wonderful chance, even in the policing years, it was a wonderful chance to see the last of um, the genuinely traditional people. So the last first contact in Australia was in 1984. So this is Aboriginal people coming out of the bush, clapping eyes on, uh, on, a, on a white man for the very first time. Happened in 1984. I met those Where? people. They lived in, uh, on, just on the WA um, side of the NT border uh, near Kintore, Wallanguru. And so that when they were picked, yes, gosh, it's incredible. And Isn't it the APY lands? No, no, no. Uh, this was up. These were Luritjapintavi, so they were up uh, up on the WA border, probably about right. um, west of Walbury country, uh, northeast. Of, right. Sorry, northwest of um, of uh, Western Arundel. Right. Which probably doesn't help the listener very much. I've just realised. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's all right. They can take out a map and have a look. <laughs> yeah, basic, basically, go draw a line from Alice Springs to the to the WA border at a place called Kintore, yep. uh, where that line intersects with the WA border, just on the Western Australian border side of that. <clears throat> but anyway, they, something new. Hmm. Anyway, so they came in, and they, and I've met these these women. I remember speaking to the women in particular. But I spent many hours uh, talking to Aboriginal people and I started to get a sense of, of, of the enormity of what it meant to become a traditional, a traditional person. So um, you might have heard the term songs for country and, and those sorts of things. And I yes. used to think that was some sort of romantic notion. But it actually has a very practical function. Um, I'd ask your listeners to uh, recite to me or to themselves the second line of the, the of of by, the, the chorus of Bye Bye Miss American Pie. Invariably, what you'd be doing in your head right now is going, Bye Bye Miss American Pie, drove my Chevy to the levee. Your brain's a rhythmic tool. This is why we love music. This is well-established in science. Is that br the human brain does rhythm really well, which is why we can hear a song three times and memorise all the words, but we can't remember a, a, a bit of prose or a, a paragraph out of a book to save ourselves. Mm. So... When you go through the various initiations and promotions as a traditional person within a traditional system, what you're actually doing is you're learning songs, which is the law of your land. So there's no written word. So all of the law, all of the information you need to survive, all of your international relations law, all of your family law, all of your contract law, all of that has to be committed to memory. Mm. And so... People are identified as people who, who remember all of this stuff. And so you spend 30-odd years committing to memory the laws of your land and all the information you need to, to survive on it. And it struck me, I was driving with, um, what was his name, Pastor, Pastor Davy Inkamala down the Ernest Giles Road one day. And I said to him, this is your country, isn't it? And he said, yes. And I said, well, tell me about it. And so he starts chanting, and I thought, oh, great, I... Here I am asking you some information, <laughs> and now you're giving me giving me the, the you give me the central error at the top forty. <laughs> <laughs> but what he was actually doing, what he he was opening up the drawer in his mind's eye, which contained the information that 
that he was about he was preparing the answer for me and then he told me about this in story form as to uh, any point uh, how, what country was his and before I before too long it became clear that there was a clearly defined boundary in every direction from where where we were driving and he was able to describe it and so it was like a light bulb moment for me that this man had spent decades learning all of the information that he needed to know to become a senior person in his in his language group now being old and being an Aboriginal person does not make you an elder. What mm. makes you an elder is the ability to commit uh, the laws of your, your, your language group to memory to the point where you can then protect your people. Now, if this is, happens in pre-European civilization, you are mm. the person who has the information that determines life or death. And so only only smart people were promoted. Nobody ever came out of law school and would immediately stepped onto the bench of the High Court. Mm. There was a series of promotions during which that person was adjudicated by their peers to be capable of holding that position on the High Court bench. Precisely mm. the same thing applies uh, in traditional systems. And so mm. senior men and senior women were identified to become the custodians of law, which included an accurate method of describing the boundaries of where they lived. Right. Wow. So you learnt all of this in your uh, eight year, eight, two terms, and I just, it, I just dawned on me that one term would have been in government and the other term in opposition, right? That's correct, yes. So I was a backbencher yes. in, in, in the Stone-Burke governments, yeah. and I was a uh, shadow minister um, in, under the Burke opposition, the Burke-Mills-Burke opposition. <laughs> so tell me, I, 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 want, I want to go back to 2001. What, what, did, what, did, what did it feel like being in, in government and losing government for the first time in 27 years or 26 years or whatever it was? Um, I was pretty devastated. I mean, look, Shane, as a chief minister, was an extraordinary human being. Um, he is the po closest living human being um, to what I would describe as, as a Napoleonic-type character. Um, he had an ability <laughs> to stand in the middle of the room and convince a whole room to his way of view just by the sheer power of his presence. Um, right. Enormously self-confident human being. And so, as a consequence, I could well imagine uh, that, that if he'd lived in another era, he could well have led troops into battle just by convincing him it was a good idea at the time. Um, with that extraordinary self-confidence, of course, comes this e extraordinary ability to piss people off. Uh, uh, yeah, another Napoleonic quality, if you like. Um, and so as a consequence of that, he then um, he uh, managed to finally annoy enough people around him where uh, he was the, the numbers were being counted. And um, I was in Africa at the time. It's a long story, but um, I refused to support Burke uh, simply because mm. I felt a loyalty to Shane because of the way that he yeah. dealt with that first issue. But Shane was an emotional roller coaster. Um, one minute you would be up, 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 and you'd think that the you know you could conquer the world, and the mm. next minute you were losing the referendum for statehood. Right. Mm. And you were you were suddenly crestfallen and, and bereft of joy because this yeah. calamity had occurred. And this 
I think that if one thing really crystallised uh, people's issues with Shane Stone and possibly even the CLP, um, I don't know if you've ever seen cold, super, wa super cool water freeze. All you do is bang it on the table and suddenly the whole thing crystallises. Yeah. Um, in Shane's mm. case, that happened to the CLP and it happened when essentially he went through the process of appointing himself a QC. Oh, gosh, yes. And, <laughs> and what happened was is that every sort of simmering liquid resentment suddenly mm. crystallised around that one act. Now, frankly, he was entitled to do it. Uh, mm. big, well, one, he didn't appoint himself. It was Cabinet that appointed him. But this is this business about him being able to, to persuade the day. And eventually, mm. the, uh, it was on the recommendation of Cabinet that he received his, his QC ship. Now... I remember there was outrage at the time across the legal community, across the community. And I think that that was the single act that saw this, this sudden change from liquid to solid resentment. And mm. I think that's really what ultimately gave uh, Den the, Dennis Burke the momentum he needed to roll shame. But mm. the difficulty for Dennis was undoing the arrogant label which had landed on the CLP's shoulders by that stage and was so indelibly marked on the CLP that a government that had essentially, or a party that essentially had 28 years of rule, um, it was the its time factor. And so mm. uh, Labor wasn't particularly astonishing. Uh, Claire Martin was an extraordinarily presentable uh, opposition leader. But even she, I recall that particular night when she was interviewed, she was genuinely surprised that she'd won. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But what, can I just ask, what on earth possessed Shane to do that? I mean, that is just, that, that's the sort of thing you'd expect from Donald Trump. Well, <laughs> I actually think that Shane is a much cleverer man than Donald, Donald Trump, to be honest. Um, look, Shane also under, understood certain things about how you present yourself in Southeast Asia and those sorts of things. And those titles do matter when you're dealing with, oh. with businesses in Southeast Asia and those sorts of things. The other thing, of course, is Shane also knew that he was never going to be Chief Minister forever. And right. the title doesn't stop when the Chief Ministership stopped. The title follows along. He is still, to this day, Shane Stone QC. Yes. In fact, he is <laughs> Shane Stone, the Honourable Shane Stone QC AC. Um, those yes. are some pretty heavy letters. Mm. Mm. So he had an ulterior motive. Oh, who would ever suggest any politician would have an ulterior motive for anything? <laughs> um, I don't know what his motives. I don't know what his motives were. What I do know right. is that that one act seemed in so many people's minds' eye yes. to just yes. say, "All right, that's it. We've had enough." Yes. 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 And so, okay, so he got rolled by uh, Dennis. And you guys no, went he to didn't. the election and no, no, he didn't. Uh, Shane, no. I think, saw the writing on the wall. Shane was never, ever going to allow himself to be rolled. So Shane damn well resigned before any could have, anybody could roll him. And that's what he did. Right. So right. Uh, I don't doubt that Shane saw the numbers. Um, yeah. I don't doubt that, that, that Shane um, uh, knew what was coming, um, yeah. but he was never going to be rolled. And so like the Napoleonic character that he was, uh, he, he embraced 
his his own legacy and made sure that he was able to say that he resigned as chief minister, which he did. Right, right. And uh, Dennis uh, uh, was left holding the baby? Yeah, Dennis uh, was left holding the baby. And he, look, Dennis was this really decent guy, is a really decent bloke. Uh, and he just had a couple of missteps, which didn't help the overall impression. Um, I think, but I'm not sure that Dennis could have done anything about what was going to happen in people's mind's eye by that stage. Um, it was a, it was an unremarkable campaign, um, and I remember seeing some some polit- political people covering the, the territory campaign. And Labor was doing this really smick vision for the territory type advertising. And Dennis, for some reason, was standing in front of a chain mesh fence um, (laughs) in one of the ads. Um, And and the messaging just, it just didn't quite work. And uh, I think it's a shame because Dennis, in many respects, I mean, when he was health minister, he was doubtlessly embraced as the best health minister of the territory ever had. He didn't quite carry that into the chief ministership, but I suspect that he was carrying uh, the CLP legacy. Well, Dave Tolden might have something to say about that. I think Dave thought he was the best health minister to CLP ever. Dave came came after Dennis, of course. I was saying up until that day. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Up until Dave declared himself the best. (laughs) Look, every politician will have their own memories of of certain events. Um, And I doubt that there were some of my former colleagues will be thinking about some of of the things I'm saying. They're thinking, wow, that's all bullshit. That's not true. Um, yeah. Dave Toller, when I uh, Dave Toller remembers me, uh, remembered me as crying in my office one day. Well, that's just nonsense. I never was crying. He was right. I was angry. I was angry, but I wasn't crying. <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that. All right. Yeah, so, so, okay. So, so you you landed in opposition, and you did four years uh, as what. Uh, Shadow, uh, what? Shadow Minister? Oh, Shadow Minister for a whole bunch of shit. Local government sticks in my mind's eye, but I had a couple of others. (laughs) Right. Um, So it was boring then. (laughs) Look, there is nothing worse. I mean, you know, somebody once made the observation that when Peter Jackson was filming the the Lord of the Rings trilogy in New Zealand, they actually had a minister for... Uh, for uh, the Lord of the Rings or the minister for the for the whole thing. And, of course, there had to be a shadow minister for the Lord of the Rings. And, I mean, I couldn't think of a more pathetic title in, in all the politics. Um, I didn't know that. It's, it's, a, it's a great title, uh, shadow minister. It sounds like it has gravitas. In the reality, uh, in the reality it has all of the substance of a shadow. Um, (laughs) What you do is you learn your craft as a potential minister by familiarising yourself with the annual reports, going through the estimates process um, and understanding and uh, looking at what government is doing and being critical in that particular area. To that end, it is useful. Um, But I there was because even the CLP at that time was um, unstable. Um, it had its own internal problems. I mean, there was a reason we were reduced to four after the, the 2008 election. Yeah. Um, uh, was because of, of that instability. And right. uh, But what I did was learn the craft of, of government. I learned more in 
in opposition about how government should operate uh, than I ever learned would have learned from sitting on the back benches of, the, of, of government. Um, and it was useful in that respect. And of course, in 2008, 2005, I should say, um, I lost my seat. Um, mm. And I was invited by to go and work in the leader of the opposition's office. So I became a starter, mm. um, which mm. saw me through my law degree. And I just expected to go and practice law. Um, mm. But then I got drawn back into it for various reasons and was pre-selected mm. in 2008 to stand at the CLP in Port Darwin, which, I, which is the seat I won, which is Shane's I remember seat. you sitting in... You're right, because I, I remember you, uh, when uh, you were running for that seat, you'd uh, put up, pull up a chair and, and your umbrella in, in the mall, and it's almost like a portable office, uh, you know, um, you, you're open for that, business. I did that every weekend or uh, regularly for the whole time I was the member for Port Darwin. In fact, I used to right. pride myself on probably being the most approachable Attorney General in Australia's history, because if you wanted to speak to me, um, nearly every Saturday morning I was on the corner of um, Smith and Daly Street. At the roundabout. Right. I remember it right. well. And, and so uh, how, did you, how did you win that seat in, in 08? Um, basically, I, st- I, I convinced my, my branch chair that as the CLP, we should be out door knocking. And they said, oh, you want to go door knock, you go and do it. So I, as a local member of the CLP, not as a candidate, I think I started door knocking and listening to people, what people were saying on the on on the street corners or on the, on the doorstep. So um, listen, going through that process of listening carefully, I then formed a clear idea as to what, was, what were issues in the seat of Port Darwin. Um, when we finally went through the pre-selection process, um, I was able to sit in front of the pre-selection committee and tell them that what the polling was telling them uh, on, the, on, on the document in front of them. So no other candidate for the pre-selection for the seat of Port Darwin had door-knocked the seat, um, which, of course, was a big plus. Naturally, I had a degree in political science. Naturally, I had uh, uh, I was just finishing my law degree. I also had a, um, uh, a, a door-knock the whole seat. I, I would like to think that... How do you door-knock a, all these apartments? Oh, what you do is, is that if you, some apartments you just can't door-knock. Uh, some you can. It depends on whether or not there's a central locking system. And if there, are, if you can get to the door, you, you knock on the door. If you can't, you sit outside the thing with a with a, a, a small barbecue and some sausages, uh, and you sit. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you, you only need one person to let you in, and you're in the whole building. No, no. You, you, it, if it wasn't political, it would be stalking. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> You're just standing at the bottom of somebody's window, looking at them pathetically, hoping that they'd open the window so you can talk to them and give them a sausage. Oh, gosh. Right. And so uh, that was uh, that obviously worked, uh, John. Well, I won the seat with 52% two-party preferred. Um, right. So uh, Kerry Satchelotto was uh, was the member for Port Darwin for four years um, yeah. under Labor. Um, she didn't put up much resistance. I was really quite surprised how how soft her resistance was. And right. when it came to the seat, I, I only won it by a whisker. Um, but then I said about, of course, working the seat properly and full time. So the, the next time mm. we went to the polls, and that was in, what, 2012 when we won government, mm. then I won the seat 60% two-party preferred. So I mm. galloped home in that particular election. 
So interesting. You started your political career in government, you finished in opposition, then you start restarted in opposition, and then you finished in government. Affirmative. Hmm. And so 2012, what, uh, what happened there? Well, 2012 is we went to the polls and, um, uh, and the, the Labor Party was on the nose in a lot of places, but there was no major shift. So none of the urban shift, seats shifted um, during the, um, that election campaign, but a number of bush seats did. And so, <coughs> excuse me, what we ended up with was a, uh, a fairly substantial uh, majority with uh, a large Bush contingent. So we had Larissa Lee, <coughs> pardon me, I've got a dreadful frog in my throat at the moment. Larissa Lee, um, we had uh, Alison Anderson came across from the, 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 the Labor Party and joined us. Um, and uh, gosh, mental block, I'm hopeless with bloody names. As a politician, this has always been the worst thing. Uh, we had the guy from the TWI, a lovely bloke. And, um, oh, yes. Um, yes. Uh, uh, Joe Gulchi de Cura is in my head, and it's, it's wrong. Um, Francis, yeah. Francis, Francis Kurupu. And he, lovely, lovely guy, really genuine bloke. And um, so we formed a government. And I thought to myself, good, with our majority, we're good for at least eight years. So John, um, uh, of... we, we spoke to a um, former CLP minister in that same government that you're in who was, uh, I think, claiming responsibility for those bush seats. Uh, yeah. who, was the, who was the strategist behind that, John, just to confirm you know, for I'm, I'm, I'm going to actually go on the limb here and say he actually had an influence. Uh, he and Adam Giles worked those bush seats really hard. There you go. Uh, right. And... Uh, they worked, but um, without going into their motives too much, but they were able to, to convince a lot of people that this was the thing to do. Uh, and I, I genuinely believe that people, uh, Aboriginal people, and particularly in these remote seats, had gotten the shits with the Labor Party. So they thought, all right, we'll give the CLP a go. And it, Adam Giles and, and, uh, and Dave Tonler worked very closely on that. Mm. So, um, you know... Look, that's not to say that others didn't work in that space, but clearly they had a plan and they worked to it. So uh, I'll give credit where credit's due in relation to that. Um, but um, it was enough to win us government. And, of course, Terry Mills was the leader of the, the opposition and he then became chief, chief minister. Uh, now, your the relation... Can I just ask? Yeah, sorry to cut you off there. But from your perspective, the chafing between Dave Toller and... and, and uh, and uh, Terry Mills, did that start before you uh, won government? Yes. It, it was around in opposition. Look, it, it was around for a long time in opposition and uh, there were attempts to try and build fences, but it never quite worked. And that's because uh, many of the, or a number of the CLP parliamentary wing just had, uh, Terry was this lovely bloke, um, would would. But trying to get him to make a decision or be firm on something was always a challenge. And so you have these very robust characters like Dave Toner and, and, and Adam mm. Giles who were uh, strong and, and they could be really quite tough political operators. Um, mm. And then you had, had poor old um, Terry there and Terry trying to, to do everything by consensus. Um, mm when that was not necessarily the model that Dave Tolner would automatically subscribe to. Mm. Uh, those two styles were going to be different. And, and Adam was cast of a, uh, of a similar mould. 
Um, so personality-wise, one of the reasons I think we failed as a government was was not because of the work we did. We were producing some very good results, but we were making really tough decisions. The sale of TIO was, was a tough decision. The lease of the port was a tough decision. Putting up power prices by 30% because we had to make power and water sustainable was a tough decision. Um, each one of those was a body blow to the to the CLP because you had to muscle your way through that decision for the good of the for the good of the jurisdiction. So when we came to power in 2012, the projected debt of the Northern Territory was 5.5 billion dollars. By the time we left government, it was down to 2.5 billion dollars, which meant that we had contained the growth of debt, we had contained the growth of the public service, um, and uh, we had done all that was necessary to be, well, an economically arid government. Um, so I was quite supportive of these really tough decisions because I knew, knew they had to be made. Failure to make those decisions would lead to what the, the position the Territory is in now. I mean, you, the Territory has now got a projected debt of $8.5 billion. The Lagenot report says that unless you make any changes in the next 10 years, in... 10 years' time or nine years' time, the debt position of the Northern Territory will be about $35 billion. With a population of 250,000, bearing in mind the Northern Territory is not a state, so it does not have the constitutional protections of the foundation states, the probability is that if it spirals out of control to that degree, that the Commonwealth will, status, uh, will wind up the Territory by simply repealing the Self-Government Act. Mm. And yeah. this is the this is as serious as it gets. And, you know, we were worried about 5.5. These guys in power at the moment are heading to 30 to $35 billion worth of debt. And this window dressing about, you know, we're going to ask some of the, the senior public servants to take a, pay, a haircut on pay and we're going to restrain <laughs> our pay. I mean, that's just bizarre. And here's the, the the territory. The territory's big opportunity was the introduction of the GST. More money than ever was dreamed of came rolling in the Northern Territory. So in 1978, the public service. So this is self-government. The public service was about 14,000 people. At the change of government in 2001 to the first Labor government in the Northern Territory, the public service was about 14,000 people. So. There was, a, there was always a plan to allow the Territory to grow around that public service. Along comes the GST windfall and uh, the mining boom, and so the Labor Gallup government in Western Australia reduces their debt to zero. Uh, under Howard, which is the, was the Liberal Prime Minister, the National Government reduced its debt to zero. The response of the Labor Party, and I, I point the finger squarely at Delia Laurie for this, was to employ... 6,000 more public servants. The consequence of that is that every penny that came in from the GST, which could have been used to reduce the Territory's debt down to zero, was poured into a group of people whose income would always be dependent on the Territory's capacity to enjoy increasing GST revenues. That has not happened, of course. And now you have a, a, a government which has got 20 to 20, in fact, 22,000 public servants now and has to pay them by borrowing. So there's no road that gets built. There's no um, 
uh, nothing that gets built around. Uh, 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 there's no new hospitals or anything else that gets built from that. It's just paying wages. And many of those public servants, well, they serve other public servants. Now, whoever's in power, whether it's Territory Alliance, whether it's the Greens, whether it's CLP or Labor, are now stuck with the same problem, is that if you try and step away from that situation by thinning out the public servant or reducing it, let's say, by three or 4,000 is what you'd have to do, but let's just say 2,000 for the sake of the conversation, you would then be flooding into the marketplace in, in, in the northern suburbs of Darwin at least 1,500 to 2,000 houses. Mm. Now, that's imagine right. what that's going to do to people's equity in their homes when all of a sudden mm -hmm. uh, every... Tenth house in the northern suburbs is suddenly vacant. So they can, they can rent they can rent them out um, to to tenants with pets. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> <I like them. laughs> that's right. <laughs> what's the solution there, John? Because we we had Marie Claire Boothby on last week to talk to us about this, and I know that I've subsequently learned it's too far out from the election to actually tell us any policies that they've got. But, mm. but one of the policies that Leah Finocchiaro has apparently announced is the fact that they, they, the CLP have said if they're elected, they will not reduce the public service by one person. And I got the sense that, there was a, that that was a good thing because it meant that the population won't decline more. But I'm sitting there thinking, well, how are you actually going to right this ship by not doing a thing? Well, that's and that's the challenge that any government will have, whether it's and this is what I'm saying is that this is, whether it's Labor or Liberal or whether it's, you know, the, the pink and red polka dot party is that the damage and harm you will do with such a heavily burdened um, budget, which is spending so much on wages, um, will be enormous. So you either you either fix the problem or you don't. And this is why a lot of people sort of were a bit surprised at my comments about a year ago. Uh, but I actually have advocated for the dissolution of the Northern Territory and South Australia to reform as a foundation state under the South Australian banner, but not necessarily under the name, so that a single unified body politic exists um, from Adelaide all the way to Darwin. And there's a number of reasons that I've, I've argued for this. One is that it would allow the Commonwealth to step in, which they're eventually going to have to do anyhow, and absorb the debt, which is the, which is the residual of this bad government decision back in the early noughties. Um, uh, the second thing that, that they would do, of course, is place on, Australia, on Southeast Asia's doorstep Australia's front door with a major jurisdiction, uh, state jurisdiction, opening that front door. At the moment... Um, whether you like it or not, from Australia's and um, Asia's perspective, uh, Darwin is, is still in many ways a backdoor into Asia. And so we're showing the wrong face to Asia in that space. But there are other practical considerations as well. Um, South Australia now has Australia's space agency centred on it, and yet has no real capacity to launch space vehicles. However, that capacity exists close to the equator. There are physical reasons why you launch spacecraft from near the equator, um, because you use the rotation of the Earth to add 1,500 kilometres an hour to the, to the speed of your spacecraft, uh, which means you carry less fuel. And so there's a number of practical reasons why I'd like to see this happen. 
The other thing, of course, is that in such a circumstance, for the first time since 1911, um, Territorians will then have the full rights of a citizen of this country, uh, which they currently don't have by virtue of the fact that they do not enjoy statehood. So are you, are you saying by that, John, rather than this being your opinion, you're suggesting that it is inevitable that the territory will have to be dissolved? Uh, it will be placed into administration one way or the other, if if something doesn't change, and I'm not sure how you change it, the current position, $8.5 billion worth of projected debt. Treasury said, unless you make some major changes, it's going to be $30, $30 billion, I think was the number, 30 or 35, doesn't matter, um, after the first $20 billion, it becomes academic. <laughs> um, so what would you do if you were the federal government and you had the capacity to place... Uh, that jurisdiction into administration as its debt continued to spiral out of control and further out of control. How far will you let it go before you intervene? Mm. The territory is genuinely uh, at risk of becoming a failed state, not because of any social issues which are endemic enough in the Northern Territory. It's simply its financial position is becoming utterly untenable. Do, do okay. Can I Sorry, go ahead, Pete. Sorry, ahead. I just, this is a real burning issue for me at the moment. And after we talked to Quentin yesterday and he was, he was talking about the current Attorney General and her uh, lack of qualifications for the role, uh, this has long been a bugbear for me that you, you, you've got people in territory politics who have no place being in the portfolios that they're in because they have no yeah. historical background in those portfolios. Why, why Jeff Collins never ended up the Attorney General of the Northern Territory, I cannot begin to figure. Um, the guy's a practicing <laughs> lawyer. Uh, you know. Uh, oh, my goodness. This is the nature, of the, the nature of the Labor Party. I mean, I don't know Jeff Collins from a bar of soap, but he strikes me as a fairly capable human being. Um, and I, I can well imagine his, his frustration sitting there as, as a former practicing lawyer. Um, and and the next chalky becomes the attorney general. Now, uh, I don't know how um, how Natasha is operating, uh, but what I would suspect is that some of the yeah yeah great, um, <laughs> but some of the, the fundamentals uh, probably pass it by. I mean, the attorney generalship is is quite a special portfolio. Um, when I was the attorney general, uh, the Northern Territory passed. Uh, about 155 pieces of legislative instruments during the period of our our, our premiership, our um, governance, tenure. of which of our tenure, of which I passed 76 items of legislation. Um, the NT cat was my baby. The restructure of the local court to absorb some of the Supreme Court's functions, um, to take it away from being just a magistrate's court, uh, was at the recommendation of John Lowndes and. Bloody great idea! Happy and proud to do it. Um, the uh, the those sound like pretty bland things, but from a structural point of view, creating that system enabled or will have enabled the territory to avoid a three-tier court system uh, for the next 150 years, um, which would be a, a fairly substantial saving. So you know, even NTCAT can do. Um, small claims matters, so long as they're not in the equitable jurisdiction. 
Well, uh, that's a really good segue into the um, topic of crime. Mm-hmm. As, as Attorney General, what was your approach to that, John? Oh, look, it's, it's more as what I was doing. Crime was, um, look, we had a, a policy of, of mandatory sentencing for crimes against, hum, uh, against the, 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 the person. Humanity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was just washing, washing my mouth out as I said that. Um, and so, but what I was made, made sure is that we weren't going to fall into this old trap of, of uh, creating a system by which there was no capacity for a court to show um, uh, an ability to exercise their jurisdiction uh, in exceptional circumstances. So I made sure that there was an exceptional circumstances uh, clause, and I invited the courts to, f- to take a fairly wide interpretation of that in my second reading speech. So essentially, for crimes against the person, person f- for functional reasons, it essentially became a presumption in favour of a custodial sentence than uh, a presumption against one. So it essentially reversed the presumption as to whether a person should go to jail or not. But there were circumstances in which people shouldn't have gone to jail and didn't. So it was an, trying to keep an even measure there. My greatest joy, however, was in terms of correction, was uh, correcting and, and crimes issues. It was not my attorney generalship, it was uh, corrections. Um, sentenced to a job uh, remains to this day one of the greatest, uh, most fun things I've ever done. Um, we uh, we actually reversed or lowered the recidivism rate uh, during that time um, when compared to every other jurisdiction in the country. So every other jurisdiction uh, country had a recidivism rate going up and ours went down during the sentence to a job years. Um, other jurisdictions had work, work release programs, as was the case when I became the minister, which had about 0.1% of the prison population in in work release, I had 8% of my population in work release. And we had them in real jobs. So we organised jobs. And then what we did is we made sure that those jobs in the community paid them full award wages or better. And then we made the prisoners pay rent for their cells. So we got a, a, an assessment done as to what a, a one-bedroom unit with, with its own toilet and shower would be worth on the open market. And we charged them 100 and $20 a week rent. Then we made them put 5% of their income into a victim's assistance fund, so they paid back their debts to society in cash. And then we allowed them to spend $60 a week inside the prison, so we built a, a prison shop. And then we created a training pathway through the prison so that um, uh, when a prisoner came in, uh, they went into this training pathway, they learned some skills, they became more employable, and then they got a full-time job, and then they would go out and work in the community and then come home. Uh, and then they would keep the residual of all of their income in savings. So at one stage, we had a prisoner walk out the front door with over $20,000 startup money for the rest of his life. <laughs> wow. um, and, all of the, and all of these guys got to keep their jobs. So the deal with the employer was that if you employed them while they were in the prison and they left and they were still wanted their job, they kept the job. So, you know, we had guys who were cashed up in a position to be able to put a bond into a unit, buy a car, get themselves set up with some furniture and some food in the fridge and they had a job to go to on Monday morning. Um, The real pleasure of that was watching the prison officers change their attitude, how they did their job. They became engaged in their work because they actually could sense that they were making a difference. The mood of the prison changed. Um, It became, I walked into the prison regularly. I was always uh, down there at every opportunity. 
and we went into the workshops and, you know, we were winning contracts. I mean, this is a little-known fact, but when the new prison was being built, um, we still had the workshops out at Berrima, and so we won the contract, or <coughs> Corrections won the contract to provide the beds for the new prison. And I thought there was no oh. small, ir small irony in the fact that the prisoners <laughs> were actually making their beds and sleeping in them. <laughs> you made That's your right, bed now, Ryan. Yeah. And, <laughs> but the thing is, is that the mood in the prison, I, at one stage I remember I was walking in amongst and there was the prisoners were out for a day. They were allowed into the yard and there was a, a large group of them. And I'm, I think we had about 100, 150 in this yard. And I was walking through and for some reason the guards I was with were distracted by somebody else. And it suddenly occurred to me that I was standing amongst a whole bunch of, of prisoners. Most of them were in the green T-shirts, which were with the low security guys. Uh, a couple of blue T-shirts there was medium security. The, the, the reds weren't there, though, that's high security. But I suddenly looked around and I was the prison minister, or the Minister for Corrections, mm -hmm. surrounded by about 150 prisoners. And I had felt perfectly safe. They knew who I was. Um, um, and I felt perfectly safe and I had a great relationship with some of those guys. So I knew some of them by name. Um, and, uh, there was a couple of them, uh, who I actually gave my phone number to, particularly when they left prison, because if so, every so often they'd ring you up and ask you for advice. And so I, I enjoyed building that relationship with these guys and perhaps because I, I sort of sympathize with them to a large degree, understanding them through the, the lens of my childhood. Um, and I wanted to demonstrate to them or create an environment where they could demonstrate to themselves that if they held down a job and they learned some skills, that that they could live productive and fulsome lives. And that was the experience of many of them. It was very, very rewarding. And did that apply to the juveniles? We tried to get a sense to a job working with juveniles. The problem with juveniles, of course, and I know where this, is, this conversation is going to go, but the problem with juveniles is that um, the average... Uh, lagging at the time was just over a month. Now, if you remove the guys that were actually in custody and serving sentences, the vast majority of juveniles were in remand and the average turnaround time in that remand was 11 days. You can't organise a job for a person who's in custody for 11 days. Right. Um, so, yeah. you know, this was one of the, the great tragedies of the, the criminal justice system around juveniles was that um, they would come into the system, they would already come in pre-broken in many respects and from awful backgrounds. And so you had these 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 kids who who really had some some tough breaks in their life making mistakes. And of course the courts wouldn't refer them to custodial the custodial environment until it was the last possible option. So the, the Youth Justice Act, and I'm sure it still says it to this day, is that you'll only use custody as a last option. So by the time that you've got these kids coming into the, the custodial system, they already have been through the ringer a multitude of times. And some of them are extremely angry young men. I mean, you know, you've got to remember when we say kids, some of these kids are six foot tall uh, and could go toe to toe with Mike Tyson if they wanted to. Um, so some, you know, every one of those in kids and adult prisoners were in, in their own way a bit of a tragedy. And, and a wasted opportunity. Every life is an opportunity and every life in prison, in my opinion, whether it's juvenile or otherwise, is a wasted or lost opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so um, let's, let's sort of meander into the, uh, 
into the stormy waters, well, what was what was calm but turned into stormy waters uh, in the form of the Four Corners program and, and mm-hmm. uh, Caro Meldrum-Hanna and Dylan Voller. How did that all come about? Well, look, it, it was never calm. Um, there was always agitation about it because Dondale was an unbridled shithole. Now, you've got to remember, there are, mm-hmm. for your listeners, a lot of people won't be aware of it, there were two uh, Dondales. The one that I inherited was the, the original building that went back to the early 80s and it was uh, it didn't have toilets in the dormitories so the first time I walked in there the first thing that struck me is the place stank of urine so Mm -hmm. the dormitories had six beds in it each and so the lads if they needed to take a midnight leak would then have to ring a buzzer and the guard would come down and take them to the to the lavatory now of course that meant that all the other kids woke up so they disinclined to do it so they ended up taking a leak in the corner um the other problem was is that, you know, we had a number of kids in that system who were very, very hard to contain. They found ways to scale the external fences, and we had a number of escapes from that facility. Um, and, of course, the tear gassing offence uh, uh, events that, that, that you saw on the Four Corners program um, uh, occurred in the old Dondale. So I got the complete shits on with it, and I said to... to um, to Middlebrook, look, we have to do something about it. Middlebrook was my commissioner for corrections. Um, Because we were trying very hard to save money, uh, the idea of building a new uh, facility was just not not on the cards. But what I was able to get was about $1.2 million to take the old Berrimer prison, which was now vacated, um, and take the old maximum security section and get that completely reworked to make it a a fit-for-purpose juvenile detention facility. Now, I was also particularly unhappy with a number of events, so I uh, asked after the events of, of the, the gassing environment that we got a bloke by the name of Michael Vita to come up from down south, and he did a review. And this review made a number of very practical suggestions and declared, um, and this is an expert on the field, but he declared that the, what the option that we'd created at the Berrimer Prison was fit for purpose. So we were happy that we had a report. And, of course, we made all of this public, so I... I had a press conference, and I think it was about January 2015. And I called the press in and I said, here's the Vita review. It really kicks the shit out of, out of the juvenile justice system in the Territory. These are the recommendations it's making. We're going to roll out all the recommendations. Cost to the taxpayer was about $50,000. Um, in the meantime, I was visited by uh, Howard Bath, who was the Commissioner for Children. Now, uh, Howard Bath was uh, a very concerned individual and he presented me with a report which uh, he then slipped on the corner of my desk and says, I can't show you this because you'd have to table it in Parliament, but I'm going to give you a redacted version uh, which you you can table in Parliament. And attached to it was uh, a little stick that had a number of these events on it that finally were broadcast on the Four Corners program. So these things, um, most of those bits of footage long since predated me coming to power and me becoming the Minister for Corrections. Mm. So um, uh, I asked Howard Bath to give his all of that material to Vita. So Vita included it in his review and it informed the improved system that we rolled out of the old Berriman Jail. I also asked mm. legal aid lawyers to form a group called Widrag so they could advise me and give me guidance on, on human rights issues in, in, the, in the jail environment. Um, we created new rec areas. We did all sorts of things. And all of this mm. stuff was being rolled out. 
in the meantime, particularly down south, there was some agitation uh, around what was happening in, in detention. Of course, um, there were the, the, the left-wing lawyers uh, who despised the right-wing um, Attorney-General, so they were after him and for any case. So anyway, that eventually Four Corners knocked on the door. And they said to me, look, the Commissioner for Corrections, who was there by that stage Mark Payne, uh, doesn't is said no, and I said, well, that's not the attitude I've had with the media. I've always kept the media informed. I mean, so you've got to remember that the media already were aware of much of the footage, which was broadcast in Four Corners. When I was presented with that material from um, Howard Bath in, I think, 2014, the first thing I told him was, these are crimes. He said, yes, they are. I said, well, what the hell are you telling me for? Take it to the police. And I confirmed with the police that he'd done so afterwards. So I was making absolutely sure that these things that appeared to be crimes were being properly investigated. So even the protocols were being... No, the spit hood was, was, um, uh, was not a crime. Um, you've got to remember that some of these kids are extremely violent and they, we needed legislation to be able to, to effectively restrain them. So the spit hood was decreed or declared by a panel of experts to be a reasonable restraint to a violent offender who was spitting, which was a common thing that, that particularly Dylan Bonner would do. Um, mm. And so the reason that footage existed at all was that if you look at the footage closely, it's the, car, the guards are being extremely calm and the footage is being taken so that if there's ever an investigation, they can demonstrate they're being calm. And ultimately, the Supreme Court of the Northern Territory determined the, I think it was the, the, the use of the spirits was reasonable forces contemplated um, by the legislation, as was, for that matter, the use of the tear gas when that was done. So the, prob the problem is, is the restraint of anybody, particularly the restraint of a child, is never a good look. Compound that with a number of events that long pre happened long before I became the minister. In fact, long before the CLP formed the government. Um, mm. Compound that with a four corner uh, with 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 that footage. So that footage that you see collectively in that program amounts to probably three or four minutes worth of footage. It's collected over ten years, mm. and so there are a number of events, and all of them had already been referred for investigation. In fact, one of them ends ended up in the Supreme Court to an acquittal. In fact, he was acquitted in the lower courts. Uh, the DPP appealed and uh, the acquittal came through in the in the higher courts. So um, Four Corners turns up and they, my attitude is, all right, they send me a letter and they, they express that they're aware of all the work that we're doing in the correction system. Uh, and I say, okay, um, and people have called me naive for this, but, and perhaps I am naive because I believe that when an organisation with the gravitas of the ABC has a flagship program that that says that we are going to do a story on the correction system of the Northern Territory, which will include uh, the juvenile justice system, and we want to see what you're doing because you know of some of the remarkable things that are being achieved, I believe that that's what they're going to do. And I, you know, the letters I still have tucked away on file somewhere. What, of course, was being done was that they were telling lies uh, and what they were doing was conniving to get into uh, into the juvenile justice system to paint it in the worst possible way. So the narrative had already been set before they arrived. Um, 
so I spend, I think, about eight hours with Four Corners, taking them through the system, showing them where the improvements have been made. Uh, they filmed the new rec halls. They filmed the new Dondale. We let them into the classroom so that they can look at what the kids are doing and how we, uh, the three schools that we're going. Uh, and during that period, they come into possession of this footage, um, which some of it was already in the public domain. Uh, but they never put it to me. So I do uh, an interview to camera. It lasts about 40 minutes. They never, ever show me that footage. They're in possession of it. And so the, the, the journalistic um, and ethical uh, responsibility to enable me to answer my accusers doesn't occur because they know full well that if, if I point out or if they show me the footage, I'll be able to say, yeah, that was referred to police, that was referred to police. In spite of that, in that interview, I still... So, yep, we've had a number of offences committed or, or things that we thought were offences committed by guards and they were all referred to police. So the Four Corners was fully aware that we had acted with all probity uh, and all lawfulness at all times and where we thought there was a breach of the law, we had it investigated independently by the police. So they were aware of it, they were told it, and I can, you know, if, if I'm ever asked to prove it, I can they then packaged the story, of course, into that horror story that they called Australia's shame. And, of course, um, they run the story as they see fit. And, yes, it's a shocking story. But it's also far from complete and deliberately misleading. So the Prime Minister gets all concerned about it and he talks to Scullion and they hook up, have a phone hook up and the determination is made Um by the Prime Minister that there's going to be a Royal Commission to look into this dreadful set of circumstances. And then, of course, the media is reporting that, you know, uh, there will be uh, criminal charges laid against ministers and, and, and all sorts of investigations are going on. So the NT News, um, which was during this period of our government, was acting awfully. Um, but this was, we're, we're running stories that, that, that I was under investigation and, and whatnot, which was complete horseshit. John, but, I, I just want to stop you there. I just just put this one to you. I mean, I'm, I'm reading from the ABC's um, backstory how Four Corners uh, actually uh, got onto this thing. Uh, and here, Cara Meldrum Hannah says, "When I first viewed the tear gassing videos, I was deeply disturbed. Mm. When we obtained the video of Dylan Voller being strapped to that chair just a few days before broadcast, I thought I was going to vomit." These images had never been obtained and broadcast except for one. That in itself was big. There, are, there was a reason why they had been kept from public view. They were damning. What's your sort of response to that, John? Well, I reject that entirely. I mean, these events were well reported on um, and widely reported on. And, you know, she says, except for one, uh, they were not in the public domain. Uh, the fact is that that one that, that, that wasn't the public domain was there because it was in the Supreme Court. Um, my response to that is, is that she should have put it to me and she would have known, in spite of the fact she didn't put it to me, I still told her in the interview that we had a number of serious incidents which we'd referred for investigation. The mm. point is, is that she had decided that this was um, uh, going to be her narrative. Now, she was in possession of this material uh, long before that story went to air. So her assertion that uh, that uh, she only viewed it a few days before, well, in that case, a story this serious, surely she'd come back and, and seek clarification. I mean, she's got an interview in with me. I'm being perfectly open that these events occurred um, and that they'd been investigated. 
not mentioning but, that is a yeah, gross and, breach of, of ethics. Well, what I do remember from that uh, that night, and I watched that that uh, program in in utter horror, and then further horror by watching social media just have a complete meltdown the whole time thinking tomorrow there's going to be a, a royal commission announced into this whole thing yep. but it was it was the little things it was the things like you offering her a ride on your bike you know it just made yeah. you look like a complete goose john yeah i know and i you know what this is part of the naivety i mean she was um, uh, was talking about the bike and in endlessly and you know what it was this is part of my problem i was never a really good media operator um and i you know i tended to trust where i shouldn't have mm. and i've paid the penalty for that on a number of occasions um mm. but the suggestion is of course is that we were wickedly uh, engaging in institutional abuse of children which was just horseshit mm. nothing of the sort mm. and ultimately after a royal commission um, which spent $74 million of taxpayers' money, not so much which as a have. part. <laughs> which we don't have. Which, Add that to the $5.5 billion. Which didn't, which didn't end up issuing so much as a parking ticket. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, is that where they, they, they trawled through hundreds of thousands of documents, hundreds of thousands of documents, and they turned up, they couldn't find a smoking gun in terms of this systematic and deliberate abuse of children. Um, what Four Corners was shown were strident efforts across the juvenile justice system to improve um, improve what we were doing in juvenile justice. And they had it filmed. And if, if you want to see it, go to the annual report, the, the, the 15, 16, or so the 16, 17 annual report. It's all outlined in there. So they were, they were, they were, the piece to camera she does in, in, in the story, she's standing in the cell saying, oh, this is a dreadful cell. And the building she's standing in was vacated and abandoned by the Northern Territory Correction System 18 months earlier. It's an empty building. Why was the um, federal, look, go ahead, Pete. Why was the federal government so quick to jump on that then? Surely that was a completely fruitless activity the, if, if the, the evidence was there. Because it was a shocking story and somebody needed to respond. I mean, you remember this thing went international. Um, I had threats against my life coming out of the United States. Um, We had, my family had to suffer the indignity of having threats shoved into our letterbox at home. Um, We had police parked out the front of our house for two weeks afterwards uh, because there was a uh, a reasonable risk that my life and my family's uh, uh, life and well-being was in danger. Um, this was a deliberate attempt to stir up passion, and it achieved it magnificently. Um, my own naivety uh, uh, informed that to a degree. But I genuinely thought we had a really good story to sell in, in corrections in the Northern Territory, including mm. the juvenile corrections environment. And we had done enormous things, um, uh, you know, the boot camp stuff, um, the, the, the work stuff we'd done with the juveniles. Um, but there was this old footage, CCTV footage. Uh, as I said, all of it, bar the gassing stuff and the, the spithood stuff, predated my, my ministry. So mm. the things where the, where, where the, the, the kids being, uh, the voller in particular is being stripped down, um, all of it predates the ministry. 
And when I found out about it, I had it investigated by police. So here am I thinking that we have done everything that we needed to do in terms of obeying the law and and well as doing what is necessary to protect these kids, the other kids around them and the staff in the system. Uh, we had the VITA review, we improved our training systems and uh, for, so that our staff was, was far more trained than they ever were. And of course, this historical stuff blew up and none of the good stuff that we'd done over the preceding four years surfaced. So uh, they, had their, they had their horror story. And you know what? It looked bad. And they, fortunately, I'd already announced my resignation anyhow, so I was retiring from Parliament. Um, Adam then went and talked about, uh, Adam Giles, the then Chief Minister, said there was a cultural cover-up, which is just wrong. It wasn't. Um, we knew all about it. In fact, I told the Chief Minister that that, that just wasn't correct um, and that we had done everything that we needed to do to improve the system as far as our budget would allow. I can tell you now that if I had personally $74 million of discretionary funding in the juvenile sector, I would have done a hell of a lot more than that bloody Royal Commission is ever going to achieve. Mm. Uh, the problem is my discretionary budget was just over a million. And why, and did, I, uh, why did Adam throw you under the bus like that? Yeah, he didn't. He, he knew he had – he wanted to take it over to show leadership just before the election. Um, if he was throwing me under the bus, he would have stripped me of all of my – portfolios, but I remained the Attorney General uh, until the prorogation of Parliament. Um, mm. As I, I also remained Health Minister, you know, the guy who built the Palmerston Hospital, um, as well as the Minister of Mental Health Services and, and, and all of that. Um, he didn't throw me under the bus. Uh, to refer to a culture of cover-up was, was not correct, but he was dealing with the instant political problem in, a, in the lead-up to an election. Um, but the dishonesty of the media during this period, uh, particularly the ABC Four Corners program, um, and their conduct was reprehensible. Um, they did not abide by any of their journalistic standards. They didn't put a number of those things to me. They certainly never tried to show me the footage. Uh, they made promises to broadcast the improvements that we had made in the uh, juvenile justice system as well as the adult system. Uh, they were promised a balanced story. They provided none of the above. Um, she, as, as, sorry, go ahead. The journalist herself uh, had made great comments about the, the motorcycle that I was riding. So, you know, in the story, I'm this you know, redneck hoo-ha that drives around on a Harley Davidson offering rides. Um, she had mentioned that motorcycle a multitude of times. I didn't realise the camera was on at that moment. And she'd gone on about it so much. I said, well, that's what prompted the comment. But, of course, you don't get to see that because no. uh, you, the viewer, only get to see what the, the journalist wants you to see. I made a complaint. So I complained to the ABC and, of course, they covered. Uh, you know, in my opinion, the report was so misleading that, well, let's put it this way, if a federal public servant, which ABC journalists are, they're federal public servants, misleads a prime minister into expending $74 million um, by presenting a report that kids are being tortured and that we're running Abu Ghraib, and these are the languages that the report used, mm -hmm. um, then surely that public servant and that department that allowed that to occur would be under scrutiny. Um, but the ABC were never held to account for the conduct of that show. Um, and if they were correct, if we were torturing children, if we were 
um, running Abu Ghraib. And if we were engaged in acts of barbarism, as alleged in that mm. program, where are the prosecutions? Mm. You had a, a royal it's... commission that could look anywhere it liked. It could turn yeah. any book, it could ask any question. And after all of that, sure, they criticised the system. If you look at any system like that, there's going to be room for criticism. But where were the prosecutions? Where were the prosecutions for these indictable offences which were alleged by Four Corners? It's, it's really distressing to hear this, John, because, um, look, I, I don't know what your view is on the ABC uh, as a general proposition, but, you know, m my view is is that we need it uh, and I would defend it, uh, you know, if called upon to do so. But these type of stories and these type of situations really just create enormous angst about, you know, what, what they're doing. <laughs> it's, my criticism, it's my criticism of the ABC is this. I don't want to see the ABC gone. I think there's always space for a public broadcaster. But the public broadcaster has a very specific role. Now, if you look at something like PBS out of the United States, uh, the public broadcasting system there, where you actually do it by donation, by the way, it's, it's, uh, it's supported by, by private citizens, they, they are never chasing ratings. Now, for some reason, the ABC has gotten into this mindset that they have to chase ratings, particularly with their news programs. I think that's a calamitous mistake to make for a public broadcaster. What a public broadcaster needs to do is produce something which is so full of integrity that you can take it to the bank uh, mm. and trust it as though it's gold. So the ethical standards that need to be consistently maintained by a public broadcaster have to be of such a standard that even if you get the sexiest story on the planet, you've got to present it fairly and present it with balance. And now I trusted, and this is where I, people have called me naive, including journalists, and this is the part that really amazes me, because if a journalist says you're being naive, of course the journalist is coming after you. Surely that's an indictment on their own trade. Mm -hmm. Rather than, you know, they say, El Frank, you're being a fool for trusting Four Corners, and perhaps they were right. But I did trust them, and the reason that I trusted them is because they were from the ABC, and that yes. they, were, they were their flagship program, what they were going to say. Every time I've ever watched Four Corners, I have never questioned um, the, the integrity of what they were broadcasting. Now that I've been through that system, I struggle to watch Four Corners, even when they do a, a, a very serious story on some very serious matters. I'm, the, the question that's constantly grinding in the back of my head is, what are they up to? Now... Mm -hmm. If there is large amounts of criticism, even a former ABC chairman has criticised the ABC uh, stridently because of its political leanings. Now, um, the ABC or any public broadcaster needs to be, by definition, like Caesar's wife, not only beyond reproach, but seen to be on reproach. The fact mm. that I'm able, on the basis of, of the results of the Royal Commission, to criticise the ABC's flags, flagship programme because what they said was happening and the indictable offences they alleged in that program were never, ever proven, demonstrates that they had allowed themselves to stray from their, their core function, which is hmm. to present the news, present it fairly, and present it with, uh, with, with a, sober, a sober disposition. 
that mm. Four Corners program had all of the integrity of a current affair uh, on a Friday night. Mm. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> that's, that's the trend. That's, that's not a Thursday. That's a Friday. Um, you know, mm. Billy Bloggs, the neighbour, is busy arguing with Betty Bloggs across the back fence about the shrub that's intruding into the yard, and that's the beat-up mm. story. Mm. What they had done was taken a really complex issue in the Northern Territory. They had been given full access as per request. I went with them. I spent eight hours with them, talking to them about the things that we're doing, the challenges that we faced, the complexity of the issues that we had. I sat down and did a 40-minute interview face-to-face and continued to talk to them about the complexities of the challenges in the Northern Territory and how we had difficulties in running custodial environments and how we had difficulty in managing some of these kids because they were inherently violent and that we couldn't bring about change because they were there for 11 days or 30 days at a time uh, and how we were trying to deal with, with these issues in other parts of government. And what the public got served up was um, was uh, some old footage which was already investigated, but the public were never told that. The public were led to believe that what they were seeing uh, was uh, suppressed. It wasn't suppressed. It was mm. investigated in accordance with the law of the Northern Territory. And if that hadn't mm. been, do you reckon the Royal Commission uh, wouldn't have uh, sent it to the police with a recommendation of criminal investigation? They so did, did prefer it. Sorry, go on. Did, did you watch the program when it first went to air? Yep. What was the fallout for you personally from that? I, I know the political side, but you mentioned some pretty horrific things before about your family and you personally. How, how did you deal with all that? Oh, look, I was angry because of, of what I sensed was a betrayal of the truth. Um, there was no doubting that there were issues in the correction system. There always are. There are in any correction system. But what happened was that they, the, the Four Corners program had become so um, uh, in, involved in its own sensationalism that it lost its objectivity, which was its primary duty. Um, and it must have known that because by the time I got to the Royal Commission, um, they were seeking suppression of my, my evidence in relation to the matter. So I'd supplied a statement to the Royal Commission. The ABC were applying to have it suppressed, um, mm. uh, which, of course, was newsworthy in its own right. But from a personal perspective, I was just angry that they had taken many years of work, uh, work that they'd seen, work that they, where they had filmed the improvements. You know, they'd filmed in the correction system a whole bunch of prisoners that were, were um, working in the system were learning new skills, were getting accreditation from Bachelor Institute for those skills, um, you know, get prisoners with jobs. All of that was, of course, going to be destroyed by this program because the invariable investigation was going to soak up um, uh, any resources that were being put up to, uh, put into these education programs. And that's how it's transpired. Right. Yeah. The workshops and stuff that we were doing inside the prisoners have, have largely shut down. The new, by the way, if the new Dondale was so bad, why is it still operating four years later? Mm. And if, the, if the, the Royal Commission was so wise, why are they now suppressing those juveniles with shotguns? Yeah. Well, let's talk about that, uh, John. I mean, I mean you've, you, you obviously left the Territory, uh, what, how many years ago? 
Oh, I left um, shortly, uh, you know, uh, 2016, so after the last election. Right. Uh, but you've obviously kept a bit of a watching brief on what's been happening here. Do you mm. think that the Four Corners program um, and Cara Meldrum Hanna's, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, well, expose into, into all of this is the reason that we are currently where we are in terms of crime in the Territory? I think that there's a a large contribution. You've got to remember there's a narrative involved here, and the narrative is based uh, largely from a a southern worldview. Um, If you go to places like Sydney and Melbourne, they're quite convinced that the Northern Territory is Australia's version of Alabama and that any white person in the Northern Territory uh, automatically despises any black person in the Northern Territory, and that narrative is fed at every opportunity. So that's what the narrative that Four Corners tried to pitch. And that's the narrative that the, that the Royal Commission was largely encouraged to follow. So it was automatically a race-based issue, no matter how you held it up to the light. And frankly, it wasn't. But that's how it was always going to be interpreted. So that, the Royal Commission followed that narrative. So you've got to remember, I was summoned to give evidence twice before the Royal Commission. So they dragged me back there for a second time. And I genuinely said to the, to the Royal Commission, look, there are a number of you've got a golden opportunity here to change some things and send some signals to to people in the Northern Territory, including Aboriginal people, that they need to change some of the things they do um, in relation to how they uh, how they conduct themselves. Now, one of the issues that I raised was genital mutilation, which is perpetrated against boys, continues to be in the Northern Territory to this day. And we're not talking circumcision; we're talking penile bifurcation. And if, if one of your listeners doesn't know what it is, just Google it um, and you'll see how disastrous that is. Be it, lead, it can well easily lead to erectile dysfunction for the, for the rest of their life. And, you know, you spend the rest of your life pissing like a garden sprinkler. And mm. I don't think that there is a, in the modern world, that there is space for that sort of behaviour anymore. I don't care how cultural it is. Human rights always should trump cultural rights every time. And... Uh, of course, the the narrative from the bar table in the Royal Commission was that I was attacking, you know, these these wonderful cultural traditions. So I had one stage a, a particular female lawyer screeching at me that, um, oh, that's unfair. She was being highly critical of me attacking cultural traditions. And I remember thinking to myself, and if this was female genital mutilation, would you be running the same argument, madam? Mm. And clearly not. But... That's beside the point, but the the narrative also has enabled this idea or amplified this idea in small quarters amongst parents and their children that they are now the perpetual victim. Now, my experience of the Northern Territory and this country as a whole, but the Northern Territory particularly particularly in government and a large slice of the community, there is enormous goodwill and a desire to make right on on the challenges and and the wrongs of the past. Um, Enormous amounts of money are being spent. We've had interventions. The annual expenditure on Aboriginal issues in this country is, believe it or not, $30 billion. And yet, in spite of all of this effort and all of this goodwill, there is a cohort which will default to the victimhood position, because that enables them to justify any old bad behaviour they like. And so the signal has been clear that if you're in, 
involved in the juvenile justice system in the Northern Territory, really you're the victim. And that's then translates into the unrefined minds of some of these perpetrators, that this is then licensed for them to steal what they like um, and to thumb their nose at authority, whether it's traditional authority or, uh, or, or um, the authority of the community. And they feel that they can get away with it. And even if they're caught and go through the system, um, they are still justified in their conduct because they are actually the victims. And this is the part that I find objectionable. And this was always going to be an outcome of a Royal Commission that ran that narrative. Not a single recommendation to parents about how to improve the quality of their parenting towards their children. So you see a situation where um, the, uh, the number of kids inside the, um, the child protection system is as high as it ever was. The number of notifications and the number of substantiations, in fact, the notifications have gone up, and I think they recently they've come down slightly, but they're enormous. Um, and so you have this, this dislocation with a sense of responsibility that really has to start at home. The government can't... People think that government can fix lives. Government is not capable of it. Um, even when government becomes so completely present that you live in some sort of socialist state, even a socialist government, no matter how well intended, cannot fix the lives of the people that live in, their, in the community. Only people who can fix their lives and their families are the people who are making those choices. And so the best the government can do is provide services, and that's the best it will ever be able to do. So having regard to the, the state of affairs here at the NT, and I think there is no secret that the two top issues in the Northern Territory uh, leading into the election uh, this August are the economy and crime, and uh, depending on who you talk to, it's uh, uh, w which one comes first. Uh, what, how, how do you feel about that, John? I mean, given that it appears that you know you were trying to write the system here, um, the CLP for whatever reason, uh, and Dave Dave uh, Tolner, who was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, said the CLP was scandal ridden, and then he proceeded to remind us of what those scandals were. We've sort of <laughs> forgotten about a few of them. Um, I think he was a little bit unkind, but anyway, on. <laughs> Right. So, so w w w I mean, Robin Lamley is saying that, uh, you know, crime in Alice Springs is absolutely and utterly out of control, even more so than Darwin. Yep. Uh, what do you do? Well, I mean, look, here's one of the fundamental problems is that we have a rather bizarre situation arising out of our federal system. We have a federal government who literally pours every fortnight millions upon millions upon millions of dollars into the Northern Territory, uh, which feeds uh, into idle hands. And at the risk of sounding a bit religious, I'm not that religious at all, but in fact, I'm not religious at all, but at the risk of sounding a bit religious, the devil certainly finds work for idle hands. So you've got one tier of government pouring millions of dollars, which enables idle hands to, to drink alcohol and neglect their children and whatever. And, I'm, and this is not just a reference to, to Aboriginal people. This is a general observation because it's by no means exclusive to Aboriginal people. But then you have another tier of government, the Northern Territory government, that has to spend millions of dollars every fortnight cleaning up the resulting mess. And there has never been any form of s uh, synergy between those two forms of expenditure. Um, 
I tried desperately when I was the, the Attorney General and Minister for Correction to find ways that we could rationalise those two forms in expenditure in such a way as that they didn't work at, at, at odds to each other. Into that mix, you then throw um, uh, the, the, the white slash Aboriginal politics, much of it which gets played out in, in other jurisdictions which spends a lot of time feeding into this this title of victimhood or this approach of victimhood so that Aboriginal people are automatically victims. And you know what? Uh, in many instances, that may be true. But whether that's true or not, what we don't say is that life is inherently unfair from sometimes. Other people, you know, everybody has to deal with unfairness in their life, no matter who they are. And what we should be encouraging people to do and telling them to do, frankly, is... Um, find ways to embrace the unfairness, deal with the unfairness and use it as a system by which you can improve who you are. You do not and should not be allowed to um, or decay back into a wallowing situation where self-pity is your primary motivator. Um, you know, my own personal experiences are that, that by any measure, uh, I could have every reason to sit in a in a park right now, clutching a long neck bottle, saying what happened to me, a kid was dreadful. But yeah. somewhere along that pathway, the responsibility shifts from the perpetrator onto me to make sure that I do them as much as I can with my life. And yeah. this is not something that we do. We actually, uh, we should be encouraging people, you know, we should certainly acknowledge that bad things happen. I certainly acknowledge that bad things have happened to Aboriginal people. But simply throwing money at the problem, particularly in the disinterested way that it happens, so there's no real connection um, yep. between between yep. Canberra and somebody sitting in Hermansburg, that, mm. you know, every time a government says we're doing something about Aboriginal affairs, the next sentence is, and we're spending this much. If you look at, um, at the, the settlement of Hermansburg, which I just mentioned, when the Lutheran missions worked in walked into that area back in the late 1800s they didn't come with shitloads of money uh, they did however come with a message a religious message obviously but they also uh, aboriginal people came to that in that environment voluntarily uh, and they uh, lived in that environment under under the missions but they also grew food and they had a butcher's shop and a carpentry shop and at one stage our hermansburg provided 60 tons or thereabouts of fresh fruit and vegetables to Alice Springs every year. So there was a work ethic and that work ethic was easily recognised because if you were an Aboriginal person living in remote and regional Australia before you were in settlement, you worked and you worked hard. And if you didn't work hard, you died. Yeah. So what we've done for the first time in human history, we've constructed a system by which we pave our reparations um, and wash our hands, and we pay lip service to, uh, to to what we're doing. But the fact is, is that you know, if people talk about Aboriginal affairs from down south in 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 the Northern Territory, they're not talking about Kintore or Papunya. They forever talk about uh, Murujulu. Why? Because Murujulu is thirty kilometres away from the nearest five-star hotel. Mm. Those people that worked in Hermansburg as missions worked there for thirty years. There was a connection between the missionary and the people that they um, oversaw or saw or worked with or served. Nowadays, 
you're flat out getting a public servant spending more than six months in a remote community. So any sort of form of continuity doesn't exist. And from the perspective of, of the Aboriginal person who is sitting there on their country, who is not encouraged in any way to develop that land, to develop uh, jobs and work for themselves, and their contact with Europeans is at best fleeting. Mm. Why are we surprised at the outcomes? Uh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, just a, a, something as a bit of a that came to mind as you were talking then, John. Uh, I have a friend on social media, as we all do, and I was reading a post that she put up the other day, and um, it just sort of, sort of brings this whole conversation together in some ways. She was talking about the fact that um, you know she is sick and tired of the conversation always being around the, the tragedy that happened to Indigenous people. And she said that, you know, there's there's been plenty of tragedies throughout history and plenty of shocking examples of human beings doing terrible things to each other. And, you know, she mentioned the Nazis and she mentioned several other things in history. And, and I thought I was... It hadn't even occurred to me the fact of where that person was situated. But... She was actually a Canadian, and she mm. was talking about her Indigenous people. And it just made me think of the, the similarities that certain countries are going through. And, and again, it was that constant, we're throwing money at it, but it's getting no result. Uh, I've just felt that for so long. Yeah, and the, and the reason is just that no matter how good our, our, our goodwill is as a, as a community, and I'll tell you now, it's enormous. You can't honestly, and, and no reasonable person could look at the Australian narrative at the moment in relation to our desire to to, to work and help ab work with and help Aboriginal people, um, is there. And I think that it would be a, a fairly extreme position to say that it wasn't. But I've now witnessed this roll out and come and go for the last 20 years, and it really isn't getting traction because at the heart of it is the same thing that's always been there, particularly if it's coming from, from the Europeans or government, is that we know what's good for you. Now, ultimately, sooner or later, and I know that this is particularly true in the North Coast, so Yongyu country up around um, Darwin, uh, you see a bit more of it on Tiwis. You're starting to see a number of communities which are actually saying, no, we're sick of this, and you can see them start to take control of their own environment. Um, we're now starting to hear, thank goodness, from the Northern Land Council uh, under Marion Scrimjaw's um, guidance as the CEO that they're talking about much more commercial orientation. But the thing is, is that what they're doing is they're actually engaging with the community around them. The problem with, with particularly the Land Rights Act is that, but other government policies, is that it still tends to segregate them out. So the Land Rights Act has been constructed in such a way is that it was supposed to put a wall of protection around Aboriginal people. That's fine for 1976, perhaps, but the problem is, is that over the intervening 40-odd years, that wall of protection has now become their prison. It is resistant to investment. It is resistant to, um, to, uh, to any form of raising capital against it because you can't, because you can't foreclose on it. So as a consequence, you have some of the world's largest landowners living in absolute poverty. Uh, so the, mm. and this isolation of them, you know, Aboriginal people here and, and, and white people over here 
has had the effect of, of actually freezing them out of how an economy works. And an economy works doesn't, doesn't work by isolating people in, in blocks. An economy works by interchange of value. So access to land, which is the, the, the big asset that Aboriginal ha people have, has not been available to investment to come into places. Why doesn't Ramon Ginning have three suburbs in it and, and, a, and a coal supermarket? Uh, Tennant Creek can. Um, so why doesn't don't these remote communities develop as, as the rest of the community develops around them? And the reason is, is because you can't even buy a block of land there. You can't lease a block of land there. Could you imagine if you opened up some of the sections of the North, uh, the Arnhem Land coast to retirees, how quickly they'd snap them up? And you could have a service industry around that, that alone. But no, we'll, we're going to look after these Aboriginal people and we'll look after their welfare and we're going to give them money and we'll give them a health, a health clinic and we'll give them a school that... that Unfortunately, the kids don't attend to anywhere often enough. And why would you go to school when, when an education does not offer you a job? <coughs> you could end up with Gosh. a doctorate, doctorate of philosophy and you're just as unemployed. Uh, indeed, indeed. John, um, look, here's, here's a question out of left field completely. If uh, either the CLP or uh, the Northern Territory Alliance were to approach you and say, Johnny, uh, would you be keen to come back up and, uh, <laughs> and, and contest the next? <laughs> would you? Uh, would you be open to that suggestion? Um, I couldn't begin to describe the amount of ways I have to say no to that. Um, <laughs> look, I miss the territory. I love the territory. I miss it enormously, but. When I decided to, to, to pull the pin, which was long before uh, all of the, the noise around um, Four Corners, uh, I, I announced my resignation, I think, eight months out prior to the election. Um, it was because uh, there was a next step. I mean, you dally in a place for too long and it's not good for you. Um, I was also approaching 50, and you got to remember I'm not a pensionable politician. We, I was one of those mm. politicians who voted to forego uh, his right to eventually claim a pension. So I now have to work for a living. <laughs> if I was going to wait for another, if I was going to wait, let's say I did another a term, then I would have been leaving at the age of 54. Do you know how, old it, how hard it is to get a job when you're 54? It was hard enough mm. to get a job when I was 50. <laughs> and so um, <clears throat> the other thing is, of course, I said, when, when all of this crap happened, I mean, I had a number of options lined up post-politics, so I wasn't too concerned about it. But, of course, then the, the turd bomb went off and all of those options dried up. And I said, I'd said to my wife, look, what do you want to do? Yeah. I said, what would you prefer to do? And she said, look, I have this large family in Adelaide. And it's true. She's got a, you know, I've married into this large Catholic family. Uh, and... She wanted to be amongst her kin. Now, she had given up so much. And you've got, I tell you, for those of you people in listening land, every time you hear a politician say, I'm, I'm giving up politics to spend more time with my family, believe them. It's true. Um, even when I was at home, you've got to remember I had six portfolios. I had about half the Northern Territory budget under, under my portfolios. So health was a big block of that. Um, even when I was at home, I was still at work in my headspace. 
I was rarely at home, and I mean literally rarely, and I used to be sit, literally sitting in bed next to my wife at midnight, still processing files. It was the only way I could keep up with my file traffic uh, because I tried, tended to read as many of the files as I possibly could. Um, I have a duty and a responsibility primarily to my wife and to my two children, and I had neglected that uh, in pursuit of... Uh, my service to the Northern Territory, my, my desire for a political career. And it was about time that uh, that my interests and my ambitions took a, a, a back seat. And so, no, I wouldn't come back to it um, simply because... Well, I had to uh, ask. <laughs> no, no. I don't know if they'd have mm. me either. I mean, look, I don't... Uh, you know, I occasionally talk to people and, you know, time softens memories and all that sort of thing, but... Mm. Um, you know, I, I've got no idea how I'd be received in Darwin. I've only been back to Darwin um, a couple of times. Well, I, suspect, to give I, I, I suspect you'd be received very well after this podcast, John, because I think, you, <laughs> you know, I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to tell your story like this. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're touching on almost two and a half hours here of conversation. Yeah, but well, I, I can tell you that I've walked away, uh, I'm walking away from this conversation with you know, with a, a lot more respect for you than I had at the start of this conversation uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, but I know that, you know, there are Territorians here crying out for leadership in relation to crime. Yeah. And the way you have expounded your philosophy on crime and, and how to deal with it and what you did do and how that was all undone. Uh, and yes, this is your version of, 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 the, of the facts. Um, you know, I, I think, I mean, I don't know what Pete thinks, but I, I certainly think that, uh, you know, there'd be plenty of people that would, would, would love no. to see you again. You know, and look, I, I was up down briefly. I was on my way to Shanghai. So, you know, um, my, my career has taken some pretty strange turns in the last three years. Uh, so I was on my way to Shanghai not that long ago. And so I stopped in Darwin to say good day to my mum, who's still alive and lives in Malak. Um, and so I got a couple of days and I ran into combat Scarless in the mall and a couple of other people, but, but basically I had, I think, about a 24-hour turnaround there. Uh, so I didn't really get a sense of what people thought, but what I did see was was a community that, or a Darwin that seemed to have lost the zing that I remember from my childhood. You know, I remember the Darwin, you know, I went through the cyclone, I remember Darwin in post, the post-cyclone years, the the fact that it was ambitious and and cow cowboyesque, but but naively innocent in many ways, something has been lost uh, more recently, um, and perhaps it even goes back to when we were in government. But there's a malaise there now that that I that I was unfamiliar with, uh, and perhaps I was only there for 24 hours. I, I didn't see it properly, but even when I read the newspaper, which I do reasonably regularly and, and follow a bit of Darwin. Um, news, I sense that that malaise is deeper than than just the superficial impression that I got, and that's not a Darwin that I remember, and I'm not sure what the fix is. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, there's no question. It's it's it's, it's tough up here at the moment. Uh, it is a grind, um, but uh, you know, one thing about the territory, and this is the reason why I probably disagree with you about us merging with South Australia, is that. Uh, you know, I, I was told by my by my ex boss at Ernst Young in Sydney that uh, who was from Adelaide that mm. I, I said to him, I said, why did you, why did you come to Sydney, Richard? And he said, because people go to Adelaide to die, Leon. Um, 
What's that? Well, here's my position here is that um, my daughters, both of them, to me, are continue to be this amazing um, journey. I have astonished how much I love those two beautiful daughters that I have. They're both still in high school. Um, they're fundamentally different personalities, but our relationship as far as father-daughter relationships go simply couldn't be better. Um, mm. You know, the relationship I have with my family at the moment is, and I'm being entirely selfish about this, is better than I ever dreamed it could possibly be. And so if I'm dying here, uh, then I'm sliding <laughs> into a to a very comfortable into a very comfortable grave. Right. Well, Pete, um, I think we John has been extremely generous with his time, and uh, it's been uh, an extremely interesting conversation, John. I, I must say, uh, one of the best that I've uh, been uh, had the privilege of being involved in. Um, I'm going to throw it over to Pete to close it out. Well, John, the good news for you is that um, irrespective of all the awesome content you just gave us and some some great, I uh, guess, going over of some things that we probably didn't know that well ourselves, uh, you also now hold the title as our longest ever podcast. <laughs> so well done. <laughs> you know, I don't know if that's a good thing. I mean, uh, my apologies. To you. If you're still out there and listening, listening to this, get a life. <laughs> Well, it was it was both our longest and most interesting, so that's a good thing in itself. Yeah, I'll just close out saying this: is that um, if if there is a God, and this is a dress rehearsal for your next life, then you owe it to yourself to get it right. If there is no God and you're worm bait at the end of this, then you owe it to yourself to get it right. So just go and get it right. Thank you to John Elfring, the former Attorney General of the Northern Territory and the Minister for Corrections, for joining us on the Territory Story podcast. Thank you very much, gentlemen, uh, and I wish you and your listeners a great day. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story podcast on all leading podcasting platforms. The Territory Story podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.